kid. I'm Charles Foster Kane! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. going on everybody this is wrong real episode 544 it's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from jean-luc godard to jean-luc picard and today we're tackling one of the big heavy hitters of film history john ford's the searchers and as always anytime we're talking about westerns there's really only one man that we can call david lambert western fanatic both when it comes to fiction and history and cinema so mr lambert it's always a divine pleasure having you on wrong real welcome back Ah, thank you for having me. Well, catch us up. I mean, just before we started recording and before my mic started going crazy and causing all sorts of problems, you were trying to tell me about contracting COVID back in December. Are you uh, fully back in full fighting form? Yeah, I was um, I was uh, sharing a pipe with a friend. <laughs> gotcha. And, uh, naughty, naughty. And, uh, I hope it was a peace pipe. Oh, uh, yes, that's what it was. And uh, a couple days later, he called me and uh, was like, oh, I tested positive. And uh, so then, yeah, I, I got tested and, and I had it. But uh, I didn't really I don't I didn't really have any symptoms, uh, uh, maybe a mild cough. Honestly, it was like um, it uh, the symptoms were less than like a cold for me. I guess it could have been worse. So. I mean, back like in the 80s, when before people started really getting into safe sex, people would call people and say, hey, I tested positive for syphilis. So, you know, <laughs> between the choice of the two, oh, I'll take COVID. Yeah, definitely. And then like the, the day before um, he had called me, uh, uh, an ex of mine had stopped by and uh, just given me a bag of, uh, you know, a, a stimulant. I'm not going to say what it was. Herbal jazz cigarettes? No, 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 no. Not, not quite. Um, <laughs> something that gives you a little bit of energy. And, uh, and then, so I was like, yeah, I didn't have any fatigue or anything, but then I was like thinking, oh, maybe I was just, maybe I was just, maybe uh, you're self-medicating you know, energizing the whole time. Yeah. So gotcha. yeah, you found, you found the secret solution to powering through. Yeah. So it was, uh, you know, it was a, it was an interesting time, but the good thing is that my friend, since he had it, I could at least, uh, go visit him and drink and yeah, absolutely. It's like stuff. once you find somebody who's also got it, then you can just chill and pretend like, uh, all's well with the world. Well, what else has been going on professionally? Um, still uh, pre-planning uh, the short film that I'm going to do with uh, the Paula Indian tribe around here. Nice. So we're, we're just getting that uh, figured out. Uh, I'm having tribal members look at it and you know pick it apart, pick pick apart the script and all that. 
And uh, yeah, that's uh, that's mostly it. Any any goals on when you might uh, start rolling some cameras with that short? No, I don't. Have, I don't have anything set in place. There's it's a it's you know it's a lot of um, there's a lot of different factors that I have to uh, you know take into account uh, in terms of like making sure that the that the tribes are happy uh, because especially an outsider coming in and um, trying to do it any kind of aspect of their history, they, they, they look at you with a certain amount of, you know, skepticism uh, and rightfully so yeah, yeah, skepticism. And so, um, so it's just a matter of, um, getting, getting most of them to approve it. I'm sure, uh, there, it won't be a, you know, unanimous thing. So, yeah. It's another thing. It's like, while, like say I was making, like pick any culture on the planet, if I'm making a movie about them, well, you might get a hundred different opinions if you ask a hundred different people <laughs> an opinion on your script. And so you can get into very tricky territory if you're trying to make everybody in said group look at it in a positive light. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then that and that just kills your creative freedom. So but it uh, you know, the background is a specific event. Um, that was a, a, a really bad thing that that had happened to that tribe. And then um, it also has aspects of their. Um, you know, uh, religious beliefs and creation myths and all that. And so um, a lot of that is sacred stuff that they might, you know, not like that. They, they might have an issue with that too. So, um, so it's all about, you know, just making sure everything's uh, on the up and up, but still with, you know, giving me enough uh, creative to, to do what I want. So gotcha. well, if you ever need an extra pair of eyes just to uh, have a look, I would love to see uh, what you're working on. Yeah, no, for sure. Well, today we're going to be tackling this. You know, for Western fans, this is one of the big ones. For film historians, it's one of the big ones. But there's so much that we can dig into when it comes to the history that inspired the novel, that inspired the movie. And we're going to do our best to get to all of it. And my goal with this episode is to make an episode where fans of the movie are happy, people who've never even heard of the movie might be enjoyed the conversation and just the diehard film historians out there like for this episode for the first time I read this book Empire of the Summer Moon by S.C. Gwynn and I was absolutely floored by it but I'm going to resist the urge to turn this into an episode about just the book because I have to remember this is an episode about the searchers but maybe David you could walk us through just as an, an introduction I, there's no way we can summarize all of 19th century United States and you know the ebb and flow of history and the ebb and flow of the frontier and like the Comanches versus the Spanish versus the Comanches versus the Texans and eventually United States. But we're going to do our best to at least get, excite people's curiosity about all this. But I think the best place we can start perhaps is Cynthia Ann Parker, who I'd never even heard of until I started reading this book. But obviously for from Texas, she's obviously a figure of enormous historical importance. So basically... Help us uh, take our first baby steps into this topic. Oh, okay. Well, it's, uh, Cynthia Ann Parker, her story and her uncle's search for her after she had been kidnapped by Comanches was the primary basis uh, for Alan LeMay's novel, uh, The Searchers. I think it's important to get an idea of of who the Comanches were and how that carries over into the film itself because one of the things that that always annoys me is when I see somebody talking about the searchers and its treatment of uh, you know Native Americans 
and uh, you know, uh, and and they, you know, it's always from a more modern sort of woke perspective. Uh, and there are definitely issues with how it does treat uh, Native Americans in certain respects. But the issues that people are usually bringing up are things that have a basis in reality. Um, so people, you know, the the it, it's such a condescending thing because they take basically take. Uh, indigenous people and they make them one group and uh, the Comanches were unique in many ways and uh, the Comanches themselves were um, were made up of you know over a dozen different uh, smaller tribes so uh, there was never even like a Comanche nation uh, for most of its existence so um, so I think it's kind of important to understand who the Comanches were and and why they did the things that they did. And so they, you know, they 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 basically, you know, they they were an offshoot from the Shosh- the Shoshone tribe. They settled in an area called uh, you know, Comancheria and uh it, it contained large areas of West Texas, uh New Mexico, Oklahoma, Colorado, uh Kansas, and they were the dominant uh Southern Great Plains tribe of the 18th and 19th centuries. They basically were a tribe that had been uh, kicked around by by all the other tribes, you know, and uh, and that and that was basically went on for hundreds of years until uh, the until, introduction until of until they got horses, horse yeah, <laughs> from from the Spanish, and uh, the Spanish introduced the horse to the Americas in uh, you know the 1500s. Uh, natives probably wouldn't have gotten access to them. Um, until the uh, Pueblo revolt of uh, 1680, um, and the uh, and the Comanches just uh, you know they they just took to it like they they became masters of the horse. So the first yeah. the first known plains tribe to um, to uh, use horses, they became uh, probably the greatest horsemen of the plains. Yeah, I mean I, the way I was described in the book *Empire of the Summer Moon* is that it's like. A, the finest light cavalry in the world at that time, and not since the time of like the Mongols had people seen mounted archers that were as ferocious and as effective as the Comanche. Yeah, exactly. So once that happened, um, they just went around kicking the asses of all the tribes that had been kicking them around, you know, and that includes like the Apaches and stuff. The, uh, the Comanches and the Apaches were at war uh, throughout the 1700s, they were always at war. And the Comanches, they were at one time or another at, at war with uh, essentially every Native American uh, tribe on the Southern Plains. So, um, And people that, should keep in mind, it's not just war for its own sake. It's because it was hunting grounds for buffalo. I mean, they lived in this like state of equilibrium where they would hunt buffalo and like everything they needed they could get from the buffalo – so if you wanted to kind of stake a claim where all these millions of buffalo were walking around, then yeah, you wanted to kick the asses of anybody who came within 100 miles or 400 miles of the buffalo to make sure you could maintain your dominance over the, those really, really juicy hunting grounds. Yeah, exactly. And uh, there was one point, I don't, uh, I've, got, I've got the exact number written down somewhere, but there, you know, there was like 3 million uh, buffalo um, in Comancheria. In, you know, in the early 1800s, and but the other thing is just that they, it was uh, it was uh, it was just a warlike culture. There were just certain tribes that uh, just war. That is what they did, and uh, you know the Apaches were were the same way. You know they weren't uh, they weren't friends with anyone. They 
the, the, what they called themselves, the name they have for themselves, um, essentially meant that you know, it, it basically meant human beings or, or the people. So, you know, that, that essentially you're getting a it's an insight to their perspective. If you were not a Comanche, you were less than human. They were the only humans, you know, um, and they were essentially like Spartans, just a culture that was, you know, centered around war. They never built anything that couldn't be taken down overnight. They were yeah, nomadic. Totally nomadic, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, uh, so that, that was one aspect of, of things that they did. Um, eventually, their numbers, their birth rates were started to get low. Uh, a lot of miscarriages, potentially because you had pregnant women riding on horses, miscarrying. And then you had smallpox and um, cholera and, and all sorts of horrible uh, stuff. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and that just that that dwindled their numbers, and so one of the things that they would do is they would go and raid other uh, other tribes, and they would kidnap people, specifically women, and they would gang rape them, uh, <laughs> and some of them would be made slaves. Some of them would be uh, accepted as wives if they if they had kidnapped them young enough. Uh, oftentimes they would be given to a family who had lost a child and then they would be raised by that family and treated really nice and really affectionately. That was what's uh, so bizarre about reading like the history of some of these women who were reported back about their experiences. Admittedly, if you were an infant, something horrible is probably going to happen to you. Or if you were an adult, something horrible is going to happen to you. But if you were of a certain age and got adopted, you would be one of them the idea that Cynthia Ann Parker didn't want to be rescued and stayed with the Comanches for as many years as she, I think she stayed with them 24 years or 34 years, 24 years, yeah. and that it basically drove her to suicide almost when she was finally rescued, I think that's part of the narrative that a lot of times people overlook. And admittedly, there's plenty of horror stories about people having like their eyelids chopped off and being strapped down over an anthill and things like that, or having like your cock and balls and fingers and toes chopped off and put into your mouth. But for a rare few, they were brought in and became part of the family. Yeah, that's what's interesting is that their view of – and this was not just something that they would do to uh, white settlers. There's a misconception about the idea that the white settlers encroached on their land and that's why they became aggressive. This was something that they'd been doing to other Indian tribes for hundreds of years. So, you know, it, it wasn't like they were necessarily provoked. They'd go down to peaceful tribes that were more um, agricultural and they would uh, they would just continuously go and raid them. They'd raid into Mexico. You know, it was just a it was a continuous thing. And yeah, the way uh, Gwen described, he says, if somebody was sitting at their campfire, that anything within 400 miles was considered fair game as a target, which is just astonishing. Like imagine being like me sitting here in New York and being preoccupied that somebody in Delaware might be thinking about raiding Manhattan right now. <laughs> like that's the kind of range they had with their horses. Oh yeah, exactly. And, and so, um, you know, it, it's an, it's an understandable thing. It's not a pretty aspect of, of it, but you know, like I said, from the late, late 1700s, they had, there were about 30,000, uh, Comanches. And after smallpox and cholera, um, the number had dropped to 10,000 in the 1830s. So it was very important for them to keep their numbers up. Their, their view of, of people, uh, you know, how they called themselves the human beings, 
if you it wasn't like a race thing so much as just being part of the tribe. So if you were white, if you were a, a Kiowa, if you were, um, uh, you know, just a, someone from a neighboring tribe that had been kidnapped and adopted into the tribe, uh, then they, you know, they probably wouldn't treat you too different. Uh, so that, you know, so that, that there's that aspect of it that's interesting. And then the other thing, yeah, that they're famous for is uh, torture. Uh, they would they would torture people. Um and they enjoyed it, and the, and everybody in the tribe would go and participate and watch, and um, it was, uh, I mean, it was, uh, it was sort of an unwritten rule, at least amongst the warlike tribes, that this was, uh, this was a thing that they would do. One of the reasons is that they would want to destroy your whole body, so you know, dismemberment, uh, castration, scalping, all these horrible things. Um, and that was uh, because, you know, once your body was destroyed, you couldn't, uh, you know, in the afterlife, in the, in the happy hunting grounds, in the spirit world, you, your body, you, you, you wouldn't have a body. You wouldn't be able to, you know, you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't be able to carry your body over into that. Which reminds me of a particular scene from The Searchers. This has come a long way before he died, Captain. Well, Ethan, there's another one you can score up for your brother. I don't like it. What don't you like? Indians on a raid generally hide their dead. And if they don't care anything about us knowing, it only spells one thing. They ain't afraid of us following or of us catching up with them either. You can back out any time you want, Nesby. Ethan, I didn't say that. Didn't say such. Easy, Nesby, easy. Jorgensen! <laughs> Why don't you finish the job? What good did that do you? By what you preach, none. But what that Comanche believes, ain't got no eyes, he can't enter the spirit land, has to wander forever between the winds. You get it, Reverend. Come on, blanket head. That's one of my favorite bits that John Wayne's character, Ethan Edwards, actually understands some of their culture and some of their beliefs. Yeah, that's such a great scene. That's in the book, but it's um, he scalps him and then stomps the scalp out. And uh, that's the, and that's how it is in the script, too. But I imagine that that was uh, uh, too too nasty. So in 1956, actual about. scalping's a, a little aggressive. But what's funny is how... Well, all these things you're describing, I mean, they're they're awful. I mean, I, I want my, my, my tackle box, my bits and pieces to remain w right where they are, but things could be worse. I mean, was it the Tonkawas? Is that how you say it? They're like the Comanche enemies. They were cannibals, and they would eat the Comanche when they killed them. So it's like there was pl plenty of atrocities to go around at that time. Yeah, the, the Tonkawas is um, really the only known uh, Native American tribe that participated in cannibalism, not an, as an act of like sustenance, but as a, you know, ceremonial, spiritual act. And uh, it was such uh, anathema to the Comanches that they had almost completely wiped the, uh, that tribe out. So the, um, so, um, the uh, Tonkawas would, were instrumental in helping um, the Texans uh, fight the Comanches uh, scouts and yeah. So it's very interesting because you have these, you know, you have these, uh, 
you know, Anglo-Saxons or puritanical, uh, um, you know, Americans or Christian soldiers using cannibals as their scouts to hunt down their their adversaries, which is I feel like as much as many Westerns have been made from like the early 1900s up to the present day. So few of them have been really willing or just even like able to explore just how savage and just how intense and just how gripping these stories really are. I mean, just the details. Once again, it's like I this is probably the first quote unquote history book that I've read about the West. I've read some fiction and I've seen a lot of movies, but I was just like every single page was so dense with so many details that made my jaw just drop like six inches. I couldn't believe just the horrors and atrocities that whether you were a cavalryman or a Texas Ranger or a Tonkawa or a Comanche, it was just a dark, savage medieval time. It makes the medieval times seem pretty attractive by comparison. <laughs> yeah, it's it's always one of those things that annoys me when people try to talk about the history of the West. It's always in this kind of revisionist, like know-it-all sense of like, well, it wasn't as violent as you think. It wasn't like the movies. It wasn't, you know, um, and yeah, the, yeah, there weren't like giant gunfights of dozens of people. You know what I mean? You know, shooting up a whole town. But um, the level of violence that that went on uh, in the West is just uh, unimaginable. And really, the you know, the piece of fiction that has gotten the close to it, and it's actually based on uh, true events, is Blood Meridian. Which I love. Uh, yeah. That's the closest, uh, that's the closest uh, uh, work that just yeah, is. Like apocalyptic truly, storytelling. Yeah, truly the most honest um, version of, of, of what was happening. Uh, and, and the other reason, the other thing about torture that they, was that it was just sort of an accepted thing in these warlike tribes that if you had been caught by an enemy and they tortured you, you knew you were going to be tortured. And it was basically um, outside of just destroying the body so that they can't, you know, uh, go whole into the spirit world. It was an act of you representing your clan. So defiance uh, in the face of the most unimaginable torture was how you would represent your tribe to their tribe. And you they, and they would insult them. And they'd say that they're like women. They're not, they're not tough. I'm glad I'm dying today by you weaklings instead of, uh, you know, stay like, you know, staying at home with the colic and, uh, and that it was how they would get respect from them. And oftentimes if, uh, if a warrior who had been captured, uh, was getting tortured and had shown such courage and bravery, uh, in the face of that, then they would sometimes let him live. There was a white boy named dot bab who was uh he was like nine i think he was caught him and his sister were caught by the uh, comanches and they started torturing him and he just had it in his mind i'm not going to give them the satisfaction of seeing me you know plead and beg and cry and so he just somehow took it just a hard as nails fucking nine-year-old i guess and the comanches just had such uh uh, uh, respect for that. They adopted him into, into the tribe and he lived with them for a long time. And he, you know, he wrote a very fascinating account. There's tons of true accounts from that era of people being captured. Yeah. And thank God, by- because 
the anymore. Comanche didn't write anything down. So if we didn't have some of these accounts from people who were abducted, we would know so little about their way of life. Yeah, exactly. So, so you know, that's the other reason that they would, you know, uh, participate and just the most unimaginable uh, tortures you could ever think of. And, uh, you know, if, if, if you weren't useful after they'd done a raid, uh, say you were not, um, if, if you weren't like an adult woman who could be a slave, uh, who could, uh, do work for them, uh, because the women, it was a patriarchal society. Yeah. They women were had tanning hides all, and make, making lassos and all, making saddles, all kinds of things. Like the pictures of Cynthia Ann Parker after her quarter century with the Comanches, her wrists and her hands look like she's like a heavyweight boxer because she was just doing physical work all day, every day. I mean, be kind of almost exasperated and annoyed by, uh, by her white relatives when she returned when, if they weren't able to kind of keep up with her, with her workload. Yeah. They built the structures They'd move the structures, they'd prepare the food, they'd get the water, uh, they'd be tanning the hides because that was a huge part of their economy, the buffalo hides. Um, they did they did all the work um, while the men would go out and hunt or play games or uh, do stuff like that. You know, so that was just that was that was their system. And so that's why Comanche men would take multiple wives, because, uh, you know, if you had more wives, you had more um you had more uh, women to, uh, you know, uh, Get the work be done. tanning your, your buffalo yeah, hides. To be and, rich, you needed a lot of horses, a lot of cattle, a lot of wives, and you basically had like a little miniature economy unto yourself. Another thing to keep in mind is that prior to Texans and Comanches encountering each other, like no white settlers had ever met or fought mounted indigenous tribes. Like in the East Coast... The, the red and the white would dismount and fight. And that was the tradition. Yeah. But like the Spanish for like 150 years have been fighting these people and pretty unsuccessfully. I mean, in central Mexico, what I'd read is that um, the population of the indigenous people had gone from like 11 million to like 1 million after the arrival of the Spanish. But when their kind of north northern expansion was proceeding, it, everything went fine until they met the Comanches. And then their entire empire building kind of struck a reef, so to speak. And so if not for the Industrial Revolution and changing technology, who knows how long they would have remained dominant in the, the Great Plains of, uh, of West Texas. But it's just it's astonishing to me that they were able to basically resist one giant empire. But if, it's basically the six-shooter and the rifle that changed everything for them in the 1800s. But man, the, the Spanish lived in mortal terror of the Comanche. And there's another great story I read where they couldn't understand why the Apaches were dwindling or disappearing because their efforts to fight the Apache had been largely unsuccessful. But it took a long time for them to realize, oh, they've got another adversary out there on the plains that's dwindling their numbers. Yeah, 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 exactly. And what's interesting, too, is about a lot of these, uh, a lot of these narratives, uh, captivity narratives, uh, people who, uh, whites who had, you know, been... Uh, stolen by the Comanche and then um, somehow either released or escaped or whatever. Multiple ones say that if you were a Comanche and, and accepted into the tribe, they were the most loving, self-sacrificing, joyful, happy people. 
you could ever meet. They, they never disciplined their – they never hit their kids. They never disciplined their kids. They never corrected them. There was some just, of the abductees to their dying day, even after decades amongst the whites, would not hear a bad word spoken about the Comanches in their presence. And it's like, but you were kidnapped by them. Like your, your family was murdered. And that's – it's these kind of contradictions and paradoxes that I think that make the stories so fascinating. And it's why – Everybody should always resist oversimplifications of the narratives of the West, where you've got people who have suffered the most unimaginable atrocities imaginable and still will defend them to their dying day. Yeah, and in the, in the name itself, Comanche, uh, it comes from the Utes, the Ute tribe, and it basically just means the, the ones who are always against us or the enemies. You know, they, 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 that was just that was their reputation. They were, no, they were nobody's friends. So, you know, it's uh, it's it's interesting. There there were multiple different tribes there. You know, the 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 root eaters, um, there were a one offshoot that their name translated to don't wear shoes, the bearded ones. There's one offshoot called lots of maggots on the penis. Oh, Jesus. That's what fuck. their name translated <laughs> to. And that was because um, they would marry part their partners within their own local group. And it was uh, kind of a. Uh, viewed critically by the rest of the Comanche tribes because of the potential for inbreeding. So maggots on the penis is what that translated but to. Some of the names that they cooked up were astonishing. Like one of the female abductees who basically shit herself while she was tied to the back of a saddle, they gave her the nickname Smells Bad When She Walks for the rest of her time of her captivity. Yeah. And like Buffalo Hump had a nickname like Erection That Won't Go Down. I mean, some of these names are funny as fucking shit in spite of the fact that we're talking about really horrible stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was Sarah Ann Horn. She had her three-year-old uh, son murdered by the Comanches. But yeah, she, I guess, had shit herself and was called Smells Bad When You Walk. There was another one, there was another guy whose name translated to um, Coyote Vagina. He was a chief. So yeah, <laughs> they had the very, very interesting names. Sometimes, you know, Adam Sandler did that sh shitty movie or whatever, and I know that there were certain tribes that were upset because they had those kind of corny, you know, uh, fake Indian names, and they were saying it's being disrespectful. But it's like, I mean, when you actually start looking at real Indian names, they're pretty, they're pretty wild. But, uh, but yeah, there, there, there was one offshoot tribe called the Nakoni, and I think that's the one. I think the name is getting somewhat twisted or bastardized by the time it gets to the searchers when they call them the, the Nayeki. Um, and that just basically meant not staying in one place uh, or going in reverse or poor wanderer um, or something, something, something to that effect. Quick question on pronunciation. In the searchers, you periodically hear John Wayne or Ethan Edwards refer to them as the Comanche. Is that just like uh, kind of like slang or is that actually the, the, the plural or I never quite know if I'm supposed to say Comanche, Comanches with an S on the end or Comanche. What, what is, what's the appropriate way to describe them? I think that uh, I think that uh, I think it's just kind of the way he's saying it. Uh, the, the, the thing with a lot of these names is they get they get sort of changed as it goes to one person or the other. There's never any like set spelling and they're all, always calling themselves different things, too. Every native has like multiple different names depending. It's hard to keep track of it. But, you know, and then also just remember that Comanche was, was not the name that they had for themselves. The name that they have for themselves 
I had it written here, but I guess that's not important. But and I guess the Mexicans called them Comancheros and things like that. So yeah, the Comancheros were were uh, a group that worked with the Comanches and probably were part Comanche and part Mexican, and they were a, a group that the Comanches would use use to trade with Mexico. So Spain had all these issues with the Comanche. Um, they and the Comanche would basically they do a raid. Spain would. And then they'd stop, so Spain would give them a gift to stop or whatever, and then they'd stop for a while, and then they'd do something even worse, and they started to realize the worse we are, the better gifts we get. And that was just some kind of thing that they wanted to try to use to to play them, and it was essentially like, you know, a protection racket. And then after Spain, uh, you know, after the revolt in Mexico, and Spain basically gets out of there uh, in, I, I, I think, 1810 or something, Mexico just now, they have no way to deal with uh, the Comanche threat. And then so that becomes a thing where Mexico basically starts leasing out uh, land to settlers, uh, you know, uh, people from Europe and just giving them this land, this Texas land to create a wall from getting the from having the Comanches get into Mexico and give them someone else to raid. Exactly. It was, a, and it was, it was in 1824 that they did that. It was a uh, 4,428 uh, acres for $30. Um, and they just had to swear allegiance to Mexico. And I think they might've had to swear allegiance to the Catholic church too, but they didn't, you know, the Texans didn't actually take that seriously. So, that's how we get uh, uh, the Parker clan moving in there and uh, setting up setting up things. Yeah, and another thing to keep in mind is that when the Parkers get out there, it's not like they're surrounded by a bunch of like army bases or towns or anything like that. They're way out, like the tip of the spear, where once again, we knew as little about the Comanches as the Comanches knew about us. And it's like this weird moment in history where different cultures are colliding where they, know, where they have almost no information of any kind about each other, but obviously they start to learn quite a bit about each other over the subsequent decades. But you've got the weird modern quote-unquote industrial world of the early 1800s colliding with a culture that's in a lot of ways from a different time. You can take your pick of whatever previous time they come from. And it's just, it's a classic culture clash. And so the Parkers though, you could say they were naive, but they also had this like incredible can-do spirit and are willing to carve out a, a new life way out on the frontier. But holy hell, they have so little idea of what kind of horrors were going to be coming their way in the very near future. Yeah, John Parker, the patriarch uh, of, of them, he, he had been a uh, scout and a ranger. He was also a Baptist minister. They were, they were uh, very heavily, uh, heavily religious uh, Baptist family. He had experience with natives, and there was actually a treaty with neighboring tribes. You know, a peace treaty that they wouldn't be aggressive in in any way. Uh, and he wrongfully assumed that that would extend to all native tribes. You know, and that's a mistake that everyone, all Europeans, make, uh, and they still make it. Going back to my earlier point, it's why I. I get annoyed by people who uh, will watch a, a movie like this and go, oh, they, the natives, because they're thinking of uh, the Wichita's or, or, or they're thinking of different tribes. The, the, the tribes were all super, uh, super rich with their own cultures. And obviously there are 
are certain aspects that uh, extend to a lot of the different tribes and or most of the tribes, but they're still very unique and it's really condescending and ill-informed to lump them all in as just Indians or just, you know, just the indigenous. There are uh, completely different uh, ways of viewing the world within those tribes. So, so to, uh, to, uh, to, to do that, to, to talk about this, if you're talking about this, the treatment of the Indians and the searchers without knowing about who the Comanche were, you, you shouldn't be talking about it if you're going to be complaining. You don't know what the fuck you're talking about. So, um, and so basically that's the mistake he made. So they, they built this fort and uh, they had built it in Comancheria. He also wrongfully assumed there, there was this area called the Cross Timbers, which is this long kind of forested area and stuff that would dry out and burn, um, you know, um, once a year. And it was just seemed to be, uh, you know, completely in, inhospitable to to try to traverse um, for long periods of time. So that was the thing that he thought would uh, protect him from the Comanches. Uh, but the Comanches were fine with it. They didn't. It was not uh, a difficulty for them at all. So, in fact, that just was a doorway. Um, and this is kind of, correct me if I'm wrong, but is this kind of the end of like the tree line, so to speak, where we start seeing an area with much less water? And so you go from like the forests of the east to just endless hundreds upon hundreds of miles of grassland. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. And then so he thought that was going to be that was going to keep keep them out. And it definitely did not. You know, so at this fort, it's uh, it's it's John Parker. Uh, son James Parker, uh, his daughter. He, he had multiple sons there. Um, their wives, their daughters. Uh, a lot of people at this fort. So the background was kind of. Um, was it? Let me see. Which which, which was it? Buffalo Hump, um, the, or oh no, I think no. It was uh, Peta Peta Nakona. The the tribe had been hit recently with you know uh, disease and other other calamities and they blamed it on the whites that were coming in to settle. And so Peter Nakona, a, a war chief decided to uh, do a raid on, on, uh, some white settlements. This was also after, this is the winter of 1836. So there was hunger, hunger that was also affecting them and, and all that. So, so anyway, uh, they go to, to the Parker fort, they come with a white flag and they asked for a steer, if they could have a, a steer to eat. Basically, the Parkers sort of were like, they were not comfortable with this, and they assumed that something was wrong. So Benjamin Parker, uh, he goes out to meet them, knowing that they're probably going to kill him, them, but what he's trying to do is get everyone, uh, all the women and children, uh, in the back, you know, just to get them out there so they could escape. Which is kind of reminds me a little bit of like how little Debbie is asked to put like to to flee out the back of the house right before the families raided the uh, toward the opening of the searchers i mean they had the little hiding place back where ethan uh where his mother's buried and they tell her to go hide there so it's interesting seeing how admittedly it's much more horrifying when it comes to the actual history but in terms of like the structure of the raid there's certain beats that get echoed uh years later in the movie oh yeah definitely and and they were so gullible uh, and foolhardy that they had the, they didn't even they had the, they didn't even have the fort like walls like the the doors locked up or anything like that the gates locked up they just they just 
it was really, really stupid on their part. So anyway, they, they club Benjamin Parker to death and then they come in and start just fucking everybody up. Uh, John Parker, the patriarch who, who had been a scout and a ranger, a contemporary of Daniel Boone and the one who thought he knew Indians, you know, that he had a rapport with them. Uh, they castrated him and scalped him. Nice. And, uh, and, uh, you know, rape the women and all that. But anyway, they end up uh, kidnapping uh, Cynthia Ann Parker, who was around nine years old. Uh, her brother, uh, John Richard, who was, I believe, uh, was he a teenager? Or, uh, uh, maybe a preteen. Um, and then there was uh, uh, Rachel Plummer, who was the daughter of James Parker. And she was 17 and pregnant. She was the cousin of Cynthia Ann Parker. Her son, who I've read conflicting reports as to whether he was uh, like a month, and, uh, I mean a year and a half or three years old, but somewhere between there. Uh, yeah, his name is James Pratt Plummer. Uh, he was also uh, uh, captured. And then Elizabeth Kellogg, who was the sister-in-law of James Parker, she was about 39, she was captured. So after they, after they were captured, James Parker immediately sets out to go find the captives and try to get them back. And he becomes the loose foundation for Ethan Edwards. And I know he made like five big trips into the wilderness, but he very different from Ethan Edwards in terms of how the character is in the movie. But he's, you know, kind of dishonest, but reckless and daring, kind of crazy. But anyway, so now, <laughs> it seems like he would go into the wilderness sometimes without like any weapons or any food, but just somehow was able to survive these like all these excursions out into the wild. But fascinating uh, historical figure in his own right. Oh yeah, exactly. And uh, um, he got Elizabeth uh, Kellogg. He got her back almost immediately. He was able to. Uh, uh, rescue her and at one point they'd come across an, an injured uh native and she identified him as one of the raiders james H parker wrote a book called the uh perilous adventures miraculous escapes and sufferings of reverend james w parker he was also a reverend just so you know uh but he in 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 that he doesn't say what he did to the injured uh, uh native but he did say that he would never scalp another white man he has w some really uh, wild, interesting stories in his book. But anyway, so he writes to uh, he writes to uh, Sam Houston uh, to give him uh, a group of men to run a scorched earth campaign against uh, all the Indians, all the native tribes. Um, and Sam Houston was actually uh, sympathetic to um, the indigenous peoples. He was adopted into the Cherokee tribe. And at uh, one point, he, um, he went uh, to Congress dressed up like a Cherokee to argue on their behalf. So he was somewhat he hesitant to help any kind of scorched earth campaign on the Indians. Um, he had actually written, uh, uh, written to the Comanche chiefs at one point saying that they had the same enemies, which were Mexicans. Something people don't understand about North American tribes is that they hated Mexicans. Geronimo said that his biggest enemy that was not the whites, it was the Mexicans. Um, and uh, I think oftentimes a lot of people try to lump uh, Mexicans in with the indigenous, and obviously they have that, you know, a certain amount of that lineage, 
But uh, uh, in the 1800s, there was a clear delineation, and most of the Indian tribes hated the Mexicans. And obviously, Texas was having its own uh, issues with Mexico. Um, but uh, yeah, so so James Parker, he does he 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 you know does a series of searches for for um, his daughter and his niece, and uh, you know of course the his uh, a grandson and nephew. Um, Rachel Plummer, she, she was gang raped, beaten all the time or whatever. She, she started fighting back and she thought she was going to be killed because she just wanted to die because at one point, uh, she'd given birth. She was pregnant and, uh, and about six, uh, six weeks later, the Comanches surrounded her. They took her baby, they squeezed his neck, they threw him in the air and let him drop on the ground multiple times. Uh, and when he started breathing again, they tied a rope around his neck and uh, dragged him through 100 yards of uh, cactus. And, uh, you know, it literally just tore him to pieces. And so after that, uh, Rachel just had no reason to live. She just wanted them to kill her. So she just started beating the shit out of, uh, you know, out, out of, uh, you know, uh, these uh, Comanche women that were she was basically a slave to. Uh, they, they, Is well, this the, when like all the guys gathered around and sort of watching and kind of almost cheering them on? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they, yeah, so she started beating the shit out of her and then uh, 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 of this one girl and they cheered it on and they were like, wow, yeah, cool. You know, you're like a warrior or something like that. And, you know, and then the girl's mother tried to fight her and she threw her into a fire and uh, and all that. So she actually really did gain the respect, but. Um, she eventually, um, she was eventually able to, able to escape and was, she, I don't know, did she escape or was she bought by a, um, or was she bought by a scout? Anyway. Yeah, I can't remember. I just remember the, how, like when she showed a little backbone and started fighting back, then the men were like, all right, well, this girl's, she's awesome. And it's remarkable just how strength was respected. It was a, it's a warrior culture. And so it, yeah. w- warriors always had a, a high place in the pecking order. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so James Parker keeps searching. Uh, he gets he, him and an unknown uh, companion. They they make one trip out there. Um, he gets in a he gets in a gunfight with some Indians uh, and uh, kills three of them. Uh, they go days without food. They get stuck in blizzards. All this all this wacky shit. So he he finally kept pressing on Houston to give him 150 men. And, uh, but Houston said, leave the friendly tribes alone. You know, you, 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 we don't want anything. We don't need to hurt these people. Um, so Parker immediately started harassing the friendly tribes to get information. And so, uh, Houston had to disband that group. And, uh, at one point, uh, they went to a trading post and, uh, Parker saw this Indian and he was wearing this yellow vest with these gourd buttons. And uh, he uh, he started questioning the Indian, and and the guy was just giving him these vague responses that he didn't like. So he told the rest of the guys that were with him to go along for a bit, and then he got a bead on the Indian, and he said, uh, "Quote: I took one last look at that vest down a rifle barrel and made another buttonhole." So he was, uh, uh, in many ways, very much a Ethan Edwards sort of character of of not only his hatred of Indians. Um, but his willing to, willingness to use violence, and uh, he uh, and he also um, was very shady. So 
uh, Rachel Plummer gets found by a white scout. Uh, it's it it's in a it's in a newspaper that James reads. She's in Missouri. Mexican traders had purchased her, and he goes out there and gets her and reunites her with her husband. Uh, she immediately becomes pregnant again. You know, wrote her just ha- um, like harrowing account of her time with Comanches. In the meantime, James Parker tried to raise 4,000 men to invade New Mexico, try to be a filibusterer uh, so that he could take over Santa Fe. Uh, he was also accused of counterfeiting money, and even uh, he was even accused of the murder of uh, mother and daughter in a botched robbery. Um, kind of like that, Ethan Edwards uh, shooting Futterman in the back in uh, the surgery. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and so he, um, the family of the victims uh, actually came to kill him, so he had to sneak his family out at night in the cold, in the elements, staying off roads, sleeping outdoors. Um, and uh, because of that, that's that's probably what ended up killing uh, Rachel Plummer. Um, she was 20 years old. It was just a couple of years after she'd been rescued um, and uh, and her and her child died uh, two years later. So the Comanches were basically friends with the no one. There's one exception that's interesting in Texas. Um, there was a group of German immigrants in Fredericksburg, and uh, they did uh, they did a treaty with them. Let me see, what is it called? Anyway, they do this treaty with them in in um, in the 1840s, late 1840s, and it was basically a mutual defense thing to where if there were any hostile tribes, the Comanche would help the Germans out. If there were enemy any enemies, the Comanches, the Germans would help them out. And it's the only uh, treaty in uh, American history that was never broken from either side. So that's kind of an interesting thing that even though the Comanches, uh, for the most part, were not peaceful, never wanted peace, never, you know, they were basically no quarter. um, There was, you know, that exception. Sam Houston tried to get a treaty in 1844, but the Texas legislator threw it out because they did not want to put a clear delineation between Texas and Comancheria, so that did not work either. So the wars continued. So anyway, Sam Houston is no longer president. Mirabu Lamar comes in, and he goes scorched earth on the Indians. He wanted all Indians completely excluded or exterminated. This is when the slaughter of entire families of Indians became the modus operandi of whites. Until that point, the whites were not doing that. That's why they were so baffled. Like these guys are insane. They're killing our kids. They're smashing. You know what I mean? They're they're raping our women. They're not. They're, yeah, they're, it took. They're not. It seems like it took decades for Americans or Texans to figure out what was actually required if you actually wanted to fight the Comanches, and it basically meant no quarter under any circumstances. Which is why you see also like the Buffalo Men basically almost rendering the buffalo completely extinct, creating rivers of bones, because even if you can't hunt down a particular war party, you can destroy their food supply. And just basically you have to make war on their food supply, on their homes. Total complete war across the spectrum, And it, but it takes a long time, and it seems like certain generations would learn that, and then they would go off and, like say, fight in the Civil War or whatever, and like the lessons would get forgotten, and then you would see like the frontier rolling back. And over and over and over again, up until like the late, like up until like the early 1870s, the frontier in Texas was kind of uh, ambiguous. It, was, it would make some progress and then it, it would roll back, make some progress and it would roll back. Yeah, yeah. The Civil War was definitely a thing that became the country's focus. And uh, that, uh, in, in addition to the um, Sand Creek Massacre, 
um, and other things, which were just these horrible, uh, you know, versions of essentially the My Lai, uh, the My Lai massacre, uh, you know, of of the Old West. So, so basically, the country was just not interested in, uh, you know, going after the the Indians at that time, and so the Comanches really started upping. Um, their raids and all that. What was that big raid that Buffalo Hump did, where they basically went all the way to the Gulf of Mexico, and I mean, and just it was one of his most successful raids, as well as his biggest catastrophe, because obviously as they were returning home with all the loot and all the horses and outfits and everything, it all kind of fell to pieces. But still, like you had him leading like one of the biggest raids imaginable, and they went clear across uh, Linville. The, it was the exactly. Linville raid. Yeah, the Great yeah. Linville raid, Buffalo Hump's finest hour. Yes, yeah, and so. Uh, just to, I guess, maybe get back to uh, Cynthia Parker, she uh, ends up becoming the bride. She, uh, According to Comanche tradition, she um, was adopted by a family who had uh, lost a child. So then she was cared for and taken care of. You know, they, you know, they loved her. She, they, she was like a daughter to them. The uh, war chief, uh, Pita Nakona, basically picked her out and said, I want her to be uh, my wife. Now, there's Comanche tradition that says he loved her so much that that was the only wife he ever took. That is not true. He, she, he was probably the third or fourth wife that he had. Um, they, uh, you see that repeated er- everywhere, but that, that, uh, that is not the case. So anyway, around the late 1840s, uh, early 1850s, she uh, gives birth um, to some children, uh, to, to some of his children, um, which is, you know, interesting because you're because when you're thinking about it, uh, Peter Nakona is the guy who came up with and organized the raid on the Parker Fort. So she is basically now married to the man who slaughtered her whole family. It makes um, uh, the the family of in-laws between the Parkers and her husband's kids kind of complicated when you've got people on both sides of this atrocity, but they're all blood relations to each other. Yeah, ex- exactly. So, yeah, that's, uh, you know. So then, uh, so uh, so James Pratt Plummer, he, he is uh, turned in by a Kickapoo who had bought him, and he, uh, he was turned in when he was about seven years old. 13-year-old John Parker, uh, he was turned in by a Delaware. They both purchased him from the Comanche. They spoke Comanche, and they would only speak to each other. Um, they had a, a difficult time adjusting, uh, and James Parker uh, heard about that. He went out to go to to go get them, and before he was going to turn them over uh, or turn um, uh, uh, James Pratt Plummer over to his father, he um, wanted his father to pay him some kind of debt that he felt he was owed. So he wouldn't he wouldn't even give his kid back until he paid some kind of outstanding debt. When Sam Houston found out about it, he was so disgusted uh, that he just paid the ransom. And then, of course, James Parker was uh, kicked out of the Baptist church, no longer allowed to be a minister. So Cynthia Parker ends up – she's seen multiple times. An Indian agent sees her, uh, tries to tries to buy her, but they refuse to sell her because she'd been such a part of the tribe, had a lovely a – lovely... And she didn't want to go. She wanted to stay with them. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she – yeah, she – she that was what she was. And, you know, it – I mean, it was – a certainly a, a version of Stockholm syndrome. I mean, it, 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 there has to be a certain level of brainwashing to um, finally accept the people that, that had, that not only killed 
your family, but did it in just the most yeah, horrific Turning people way. into human porcupines, like pin cushions with arrows. Yeah, cutting cutting their stomachs open and, you know, putting, putting uh, uh, hot coals in it, you know, while people are still alive and, you know, just just the most horrifically horrible, horrible things that you could ever imagine. So, and, and the thing is, she probably participated in the torture of white people. Like she probably eventually, cause that was a communal thing. You know, it's just, it, it's interesting to, to consider it on, on that level too. But, uh, it makes you wonder, like, say if the searchers had been made, I don't know, by, like Sam Peckinpah or something like that. Like yeah, what would he have yeah, shown really... Natalie Wood's character doing like, uh, you know, walking around like the entrails of white people hanging around her neck or something like that. <laughs> well, I know that Sam Peckinpah, I think he was a really big fan of the novel and uh, he did not like the movie. He said, John Ford screwed it all up, but there's uh, for all the great directors that, that, uh, that uh, do love the searchers. There's uh there's almost as much that, are like nah Walter Hild I know he doesn't like it very much obviously Tarantino is always talking shit on it Tarantino hates John Ford Still. but like the directors who really love this obviously Scorsese is probably the biggest I mean he's got scenes in Mean Streets and Who's That Knocking at My Door ranting and raving about it but Jean-Luc Godard Jean-Luc Godard said that uh, no matter how much he despised John Wing's right wing political beliefs every time he saw Wayne taking up little Debbie in his arms at the end of the movie he forgave him for everything and you know, John Milius was a massive fan Paul Schrader David Lean I mean so lots of admirers of the movie but yeah Tarantino, I don't think I've ever heard him hear say a, a, a positive word about any of John Ford's films. So he just not his cup of tea. Yeah, of course. Yeah, George Lucas all, still taking shots. Paul Schrader, John Milius loved it. John Milius uh, loved the screenplay. He said it's just a great piece of prose that has things in it that you would never, you know, it would never necessarily translate, but just for the readability of it. Um, and he said he's when he was a kid, he saw it multiple times and he wanted to be Scar because, of course, John Milius. So uh, she, she kind of keeps popping up here and there. Um, at one point, her brother actually goes to go uh, see her and talk to her and try to convince her um, to come back to the white world. But she refuses. Now the Texas Rangers are kind of getting organized. They've got their they've got revolvers now. We got, we got to just pause for a second. Like people need to realize that prior to the revolver, when it came to combat, a white man would ride his horse into combat, get down, and would use these really slow rifles where you would get a round off a minute if you were lucky, and their adversaries were riding thirty miles an hour, sometimes ducking down behind the body of the horse while it was in motion and firing off twenty arrows in the same time. In combat, whites were at a massive disadvantage. And then suddenly in the 1840s, you've got Texas Rangers using six shooters and it completely changed the face of the West. And one person wrote that the six shooter killed more people since the days of uh, the Roman short swords introduction. It, it completely changed the, the, the nature of the West. And then once again, you'd see that change again a few decades later with the Spencer rifle, which could fire it off 20 rounds a minute. And yeah, so technology... Yeah plays such a massive role in the ebb and flow of who's winning various battles. Exactly, exactly. And the Texas Rangers, they start adopting uh, Comanche tactics. Just like Ethan Edwards. I mean, Ethan knows, even though he hates the Comanches, he knows their tactics. You have to be willing to not have a fire at night and, and sit there and freeze your balls off. I think the Texas Rangers stopped just shy of being willing to drink the inside of a horse's stomach. A Comanche would. They would ride until the horse dropped. They would drink the inside of the stomach and would take some of the horse's entrails around their neck and like live off the entrails. And You gotta stop sometime. 
the human men at all, they gotta stop. No, human rides a horse until it dies, and he goes on afoot. Comanche comes along, gets that horse up, rides him 20 more miles, and eats him. Easy on that. Sorry. They were just willing to suffer more, which made them very hard to pursue because you couldn't go as far as they were able to go. Oh, yeah, definitely. And and so one of their strategies was to try to get them, uh, you know, uh, at, you know, at their camp in the morning when they're asleep or when they're waking up and just, you know, and oftentimes it was no quarter. And that was when they kind of started, you know, yeah, adopting just squaws, children. Sorry, you know, this is this is basically it becomes a very Old Testament sort of thing. Yeah, it becomes genocide, and that's the, and that's the only way the the fight will ever draw to a close. It was basically yeah. gen, it took genocide to bring to a close, essentially two hundred and fifty years of perpetual conflict. Yeah, it becomes it becomes well, it's they're using the same tactics, and they're basically using the Comanche tactics. They're doing things that they wouldn't necessarily have done, um, not to excuse them as if they were that certain atrocities, especially by the Spanish and other people were not being committed. And obviously Texas was a slave, uh, uh, state and stuff. So that, so these were not like, um, saints or good people, but yeah, nobody can, were, there's not a lot of room on the high ground. If there's somebody pretending to take the high ground, then they are uh, living in denial. Yeah. But there was a certain rules to the rules of engagement to combat that, that once the Comanches came in, they realized, Oh, these rules, you know, these rules, they do not apply. So that's what the Texas Rangers started doing. And I love how they're like colorful characters with outlandish outfits. Like the army with all their rules were total failures in many ways, but the Rangers would copy the Comanche way of remaining on horseback throughout the entire battle and how discipline was low and they'd have knife fights at night and just a bunch of fucking drunken, murderous maniacs in a lot of ways. But it took men like that to actually have even a remotely a fighting chance against the Comanche. Well, that was also why the revolver became important because it could be fired from horseback. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that, so that was to an extent evening the score against, uh, you know, their ability to, uh, shoot, uh, arrows at you from horseback. So, um, so that was definitely something, um, um, Charles Goodnight, who later became a huge, uh, cattle King cattle Baron. He was a Texas Ranger. He was a scout for them at that time. He later becomes the basis for, um, Woodrow call in Lonesome Dove. Gotcha. Uh, and, um, and so, uh, he started, he's working with them. Uh, they're also working with all these other Indian tribes, specifically the uh, Tonkawa, um, you know, uh, track and destroy the Comanches. In uh, 1858, uh, 102, 102 Texas Rangers, along with uh, 113 Indians who had, you know, had been in consistent conflict with the Comanches, they, uh, they attacked. They were basically, uh, there was some kind of, I think, raid, and so they went tracked them down uh, and fought the Comanches and they were led by um, the uh, Iron Jacket, the old chief. Uh, he was the father of Peter Nakona and he wore an old Spanish uh, like conquistador breastplate. Nice. And I love it. <laughs> he, and, and, and they'd shoot him with these low power weapons and, and deflect them. Yeah. Off them. Yeah, yeah. So he thought he had like strong medicine that he could blow bullets away, you know? And so he goes out and he's taunting all these guys uh, all, all these Texas Rangers and all these uh, Indians, uh, enemy Indians. And uh, but now they've got buffalo guns 
So just a bunch of Buffalo's high-powered rifles just open up and just decimate this old antique Spanish conquistador armor. And, uh, you know, so... I mean, he, Buffalo guns were fatal at several hundred yards. So oh, it yeah. com- they completely just, changes the face of, of combat. Yeah, they just had a range, yeah. And so his body was then eaten by the uh, Tonkawa tribe. Um, <laughs> and uh, during that battle, uh, Cynthia Ann Parker was spotted but she was, uh, she was able to escape. Uh, and then a couple of years later, uh, the Comanches raided Parker County, uh, killed five white women. So uh, Charles Goodnight went and tracked uh, the Comanches to Mule Creek on the uh, uh, Texas-Oklahoma border, and he had a, a group of rangers led by a guy named Sol, Sullivan Ross. And so they attacked, and it was later presented as this glorious battle. Sullivan Ross became a politician, and every time he told the story, it became this just amazing uh, victory. He was using it for political purposes. What it actually was was just them going in, and most of the men were out hunting. So yeah, they basically, you get a lot of those where you murder like a sleeping village of women and children, and then tell the newspapers it was a glorious battle. And it seems like there are many examples of that. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, all the the huts and the buffalo hides and all that suggest that women, children, and elderly were were the, the majority of the people there. Um, and the Texans claimed that they killed that there were uh, 150 to 200 warriors, but that is not true. There was a Texan who had participated in it, and years later, uh, he said that it, it was not a battle. He said it was just a murder of squaws with one or two bucks, and you know, he was not he was not proud of that. Uh, and uh, later, Sol Ross claims that uh, he had killed this guy who first he said it was a chief named Mohi, uh, but then as he had bigger and bigger political aspirations, he said that he actually um, killed uh, the chief, Peter Nakona, Cynthia Ann Parker's husband. But that uh, uh, that seems unlikely. Quanta Parker said that, no, he lived years later and died of um, previous wounds. Anyway, so it's during this battle, they're chasing everyone down, and uh, there's this, this ranger chases down this woman in a buffalo robe. Uh, and, she shows her tatas. Yeah, and she turns around, and she says uh, Americano, and he sees that she has blue eyes, and, and it turns out that it's Cynthia Parker. Um, she had her baby girl Prairie Flower with her, and her two sons um, escaped, one of them being Quanta Parker. Goodnight chased the sons. Later in life, Charles Goodnight and Quanta Parker became good friends once Quanta was put on a reservation, and uh, Quanta had revealed to him that, yeah, yeah, I was one of those boys that you were chasing. And that. we need to pause for a second. Quana, who's a teenager at this point, manages to escape and flee for weeks from hundreds of people who are trying to kill him. And so for a guy who was essentially under the manner born by Comanche standards, has to almost reinvent himself from this point forward, where all of his wealth, all of his stature is taken away, and he has to kind of establish himself as one of the biggest badasses and biggest warriors, but the fact that a kid was able to escape uh, across hundreds of miles of open desert and plains and grassland and survive, it's just astonishing, and this is the beginning of his legendary career as one of like the, the big figures of the Wild West. Yeah, and he becomes the first Comanche chief to actually he's on the cover of Empire of the Summer Moon, he's a big handsome devil, yeah. and uh, yeah, he's he's a stri- striking looking guy. He he, I will get. I guess we'll get to him briefly. 
because uh, he doesn't have too much to do with the searchers. But uh, but I'll, I'll I'll say is that the searchers would have been a lot cooler if they'd made Scar as cool as Quanta Parker. I love the searchers; it's one of my all-time favorite movies, and it gives me goosebumps every time I see it. But one of my biggest complaints, I don't share John Milius's view on Scar. I think Scar is a pretty weak, underwritten, and poorly performed villain. And so that's what, for me, one of the, the Achilles heel of that movie is that Scar is not more cool. If he had been as cool as Quanta Parker, it would, be, it would make an already great movie that much better. Oh, yeah, yeah. And we will get into, we will get into that guy. Uh, so now, you know, she has been, quote-unquote, rescued. So the second time in her, in her life, she's had her entire family killed uh, or, or either killed or, or run off where she does has no idea what happened to them. And basically she's been taken captive by a different culture. So she's, she's just, you know, the first time, cause she was so young, she could adjust, but now she has to go to the white world and try to adjust to that. Not knowing where her sons are, not knowing where her husband is. After they finish this battle, the Rangers start going around and getting souvenirs, cutting off pieces of the bodies, mutilating them, do that, doing that while she's just there distraught, you know, like, yeah, just, yeah, just horrible, horrible massacre of all her, all her uh, friends and family and tribal members and all that, you know, and, and it just became this, this thing where the whites could not understand one, why would she, why she would she, you know, prefer this tribe of quote-unquote savages um and also the fact that she is married to the guy that that murdered her whole family raped murdered and raped and all these all this stuff so so she she basically has no family now james parker who had been searching for all those years continuously giving money all that by this time we don't really i don't know if we have any kind of record of him trying to contact her once she was found. Yeah, there's no wonderful, beautiful moment where he raised her up into the air and then brought her down and carried her in his arms. You know, Let's go home, Debbie. Like It's beautiful no. and chilling in the movie, but that reunion does not take place in real life. No, definitely not. So, so now you know her and her daughter. They're trying to adjust, uh, but they just can't do it. She has to go live with her elderly uncle Isaac Parker, who I don't know if she ever even knew him because he was basically the only next of kin. It wounds me though when you read about how she's visited one time by somebody who can speak Comanche or Comanche, and she just bursts into life and begging to be taken along and. It's like her one moment of hope of being re reunited with her culture and how they kept pulling her further and further east and further and further away from the Comanche. And I think she basically starved herself to death and died of pneumonia after living in captivity for six or seven years. But all these famous pictures every now with like one bare breast exposed with a, with a, while feeding a baby and things like that. But the last few years of her life were years of sorrow. Yeah, it, yeah, exactly. And uh, yeah, I, Isaac Parker later commented like, you know, 
Um, she was the most miserable person he'd ever met. He said she was basically just, she was basically at this point, she was an Indian. It, it was as if she'd been born that way. And he said, if we'd have let her just stay with her own people, like be a prisoner to those people, she probably would have, uh, you know, if she, if she would have been allowed to return to the Comanches, she probably would have lived to be an old woman. She, she cut her hair. She would cut her breast in mourning. She tried to adjust to the food. She didn't like Texas food when they would butcher, uh, when they butcher a, a, a cow, um, her and her daughter Prairie Flower would run out excited, start eating the raw liver, blood dripping down their face, and dancing. Wouldn't that kind of considered like a delicacy or a dessert? Like there's certain parts of like the like the a recently killed animal where the kids would gather around, hoping they'd be given like some candy essentially. But what which parts were considered really delicious? It was like I think in the in the uh, in the calves if a calf was killed, I think if it had just drank milk from its mother. They would they, they'd cut it open and then they they'd uh, they'd get the milk the non digested milk and I guess it was just really like sweet and warm or something just yeah it just sounds like the most horrible thing <laughs> but uh, but yeah but it's just it's, it's just funny to think about these you know uh, essentially Puritan white people old especially elderly ones uh, with this lady. Uh, running out and just eating this raw stuff with just blood all over her face. Yeah, like a scene on Texas Chainsaw Massacre, just eating raw organs in front of them. I mean, that's that, that feels like it could be a, yet another Adam Sandler movie. Yeah, just chanting and and, and doing all that. Someone said that uh, that uh, that at one point, um, oh, some eyewitness, contemporary eyewitness, said that at one point she had been tied up in front of a store and rags, and people were just watching her while she was like just weeping and stuff. Like she was. To a certain extent, put on display, and well, she became yes. like a circus freak. She was a celebrity, but also a, a curiosity. And I'm, I'm glad we have a few pictures of her as an adult, just so we have a historical record. But her 24 years amongst the Comanche was preferable. Yeah, yeah, and and then also just also the fact that she doesn't know where her sons are at, just doesn't know where her husband's at. You know that that also had to add add to the not only just leaving her culture, but you know she still has you know, people out there. And it's the whole story is kind of sad because you have, you have the story of Rachel Plummer, like her or, or Cynthia Ann Parker's mother who, who was killed, uh, never knew what happened to, uh, Cynthia Ann Parker, you know, and Rachel Plummer who had her infant killed, never knew what happened to her son. And, and it took Quana decades to find out what happened. And basically, it wasn't until after Quana had been defeated and eventually reluctantly agreed to live on a reservation that he finally learned the fate of his mother. And he was hoping that at a minimum he might be reunited with her after surrendering. But sadly, the reunion never came. Yeah, and she never. Yeah, and so she never knew what happened to him. And so there are conflicting reports about what actually ended up happening to her. Um, her um, her daughter Prairie Flower. Uh, ended up dying. I'm trying to see what specifically. Um, what did she die from? Brain fever. Yeah, she died from brain fever at the age of nine. Cynthia was distraught, and so some reports say that she uh, just stopped eating and died not long after that. There are a few different contemporary accounts. One lady who apparently knew her claims that she got baptized into the Methodist Church and died two years after her daughter. Um, but then other people say she died like m just months later, but just a horrible, horrible story of just a person being stolen between, uh, two cultures and having to adjust and having to see everyone they know murdered 
uh, in front of them. It just is uh, just just yeah, horrible. So that's the biggest part of the searchers. Quanta Parker will just do his quick skim. So that's her. You know, he's half white, half Comanche, uh, son of uh, Peter Nakona, and he kind of raises up into the ranks of the of the Comanche. Yeah, incredibly brave, has many like many eyewitness accounts of almost indulging in like medieval jousting, where like you know riding towards people, where one person's firing arrows and the other's firing bullets, and they're wounding each other. I mean, the the accounts you read about his his prowess in battle are just awe-inspiring. It's like fucking watching a scene out of Excalibur. Exactly. And so what ends up happening is uh, General Sheridan, General Sherman, to uh, to uh, uh, Civil War. Uh, uh, generals, uh, they get put on to fight the um, to fight the Indian Wars because Quanta Parker, like they 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 uh, they killed a group of Teamsters and they scooped their brains out, beheaded them, scalped them, uh, put their dicks in their mouths, uh, slashed their bowels open, put hot coals inside their cut open stomachs while they were still alive, riddled them with arrows so they look like porcupines. So just horrible things. So they're just continuing. You know their their modus operandi, and then General Sheridan has a quote, and he he says, you know, these captive women they're they're raped by fifty men, uh, they have sticks and swords shoved in their privates, and they shouldn't be rescued but killed. And so you that kind of mentality you see you see in informing later. Ethan Edwards, yeah. yeah. And even the Vera Miles character where toward the end of The Searcher, she has this incredibly revealing moment where uh, Martin's about to run off. He's like, oh, I got to go, Laurie. I got to fetch her home. She's like, fetch what home? The leavings of a Comanche buck sold time and again to the highest bidder with savage brats of her own. He's like, Laurie, shut your mouth. She says, do you know what Ethan will do if he has a chance? He'll put a bullet in her brain. I tell you, Martha would want him to. And that's a, you know, Vera Miles saying that in The Searcher. Yeah, she's supposed to be sympathetic, but then, yeah, just that, just... Absolutely! Wow, like that's a very revealing moment for her character. That that is actually that 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 comes straight from the book. And uh, there's one uh, other piece of uh, that that dialogue that doesn't make it into the movie, but she says, you know, she's got, you know, she she says she's gonna have all these kids now. She said, if you think she's gonna go with you, if she's got kids, you're gonna take all these kids that she has or whatever. There's no way she's gonna want to leave. And that's actually really insightful because that is actually, you know, what happens with Cynthia Parker. She didn't want to leave her children, you know what I mean? For these people that she hadn't seen, she'd, she'd only seen them up till the age of eight or nine. And then she looked, you know, a couple decades with the Comanche. So, uh, Sheridan is the guy who supposedly, uh, coined the frame, uh, phrase, the only, uh, good Indian is a dead Indian. Um, and, uh, him and him and Sherman are the ones that basically figured out that, the rising uh, market for uh, buffalo was going to decimate the, the Comanche food supply. And uh, the Texas legislator wanted to enact a law to make buffalo hunting on tribal land illegal, and Sheridan traveled all the way to Austin to testify against it. And he said the hunters should be given medals instead. And you've got the new technology where one person boasted he could kill 120 buffalo in 40 minutes. I mean, and buffalo, when they get shot, it doesn't necessarily spook all the other buffalo around them, and it made it really easy. If you just wanted to go out on a field and do nothing but slaughter and kill for the entire day, you could. That's just, yeah, that's what you did. And so that is really what, uh, what really defeated the Comanche, because Quanta Parker was able to get to uh, uh, unite, I think, uh, uh, some Kiowas and I think maybe even some Kapa- uh, Apaches and, and do these raids and and, and, and of course, just uniting all the um, 
all the uh, Comanche tribes. Uh, and, and it's just an interesting thing cause he's, he's, you know, he's actually half white. Yeah. Tall and big as fuck and strong. I mean, one thing we've got all this physical evidence of him because late in life, after all the, all the, all the wars were over, he became a massive celebrity and would hang out with Teddy Roosevelt. And like, it's incredible. His whole life story just is jaw dropping. And I cannot recommend the book empire of the summer moon enough. I mean, it goes, it zigs and zags all over the place, but it's 320 pages of complete total reading euphoria with so much information packed into each individual page that it was making me giddy as I was reading it. It's like history written in lightning. And it, it, it is just, I've always loved the searchers, but just knowing that this is like the backdrop that helped inform the narrative, it just, it, it enriches the entire searchers experience. Yeah. And, and, uh, and then, and then once he realized that, you know, the, the time of the Comanche is done. We don't have Buffalo. Our whole way of life is done. He was, he became very shrewd once they got. Oh, uh, he's a good horse trader. Yeah. Good at, good at negotiating and good at negotiating land deals. And he became yeah. a pretty wealthy, successful man. And he's got like this big lodge where he lived with all of his wives. Cause he wasn't about to become a monogamist. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. And that's, and that's, and that's funny because yeah, you, because when you think about it, just a few years before, He's torturing people. He's raping people. I mean, no doubt he's raping people. I mean, and and doing all the all the things that the Comanche would do. Um, and uh, and then he just immediately switches to the quote unquote civilized world, um, you know, of capitalism and this, and and learns how to how to play politics and how to protect protect his tribe and other tribes end up losing their 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 reservation land because they're not shrewd. They don't know what they're doing. He starts charging the, uh, you know, the uh, the booming cattle industry has to cut through, um, you know, uh, cut, cut through the Comanche reservation. So he starts taxing their herds. He, yeah, he had good income there for a while and would feed hungry people. And, you know, he would never he would never hesitate to slaughter a fresh cow in order to feed uh, some people who were less fortunate than he. And it just seems like he became a real hero to his people in a lot of ways. Yeah, exactly. And and uh, and then so he befriends Charles Goodnight, who had been, you know, the scout that that, uh, you know, was uh, involved in uh, uh, the attacks that. Uh, Didn't that, he have a uh, bit of a relationship with uh, uh, Reynold uh, McKenzie as well, that brilliant but disfigured um, Civil War vet? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He had he just had he had all these friends, just anyone, relatives who were from the white Parker uh, side, you know, he, he would let some of them stay at, at this house that he had these ranchers build for him with, the, with more stars than a, than a general, you know, um, and and all that. And then he started his the Native American church, which was uh, basically kind of a mix of Christianity with a bit of uh, uh, native ritual and then also the peyote ritual which uh, came from Mexico, which was not um, an actual like uh, part of Comanche culture uh, for a long time. It had just recently been adopted and uh, they, they didn't want him to do the peyote ritual and stuff like that. And he said, you know, you know, a white man goes to church and hears uh, somebody talk about Jesus. Uh, the Indian goes to his teepee and he talks to Jesus. <laughs> so, they, so they actually got it uh, legalized to, you know, do their their peyote ritual. And oh, of course, some it. people wanted him to get rid of his wives, you know, and uh, he said, well, well I'm, I'm just going to pick one. Like I've done all this other all, all this other stuff. I can't uh, I can't just abandon my my multiple wives. So, yeah, he was a very, very fascinating dude. 
became friends with Teddy Roosevelt. Teddy Roosevelt uh, built a, a, a bison um, sanctuary for them so that they could periodically hunt bison again. And uh, yeah, he's just a really fascinating guy. There's a horrible story about him. And uh, I can't remember, I don't know if he was an uncle or some kind of older relative going into this hotel and they had a gas Oh, they cho- uh, nearly uh, choked to death. They would blow out the the it, lamps, not realizing yeah, you have to turn the gas off instead of just blowing out the fire. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a yeah, horrible. Quana went under for like a, a couple of days before he uh, before he came to. But I guess uh, Gwen phrased it really well. He says it's interesting how America's knowledge of the Comanches begins and ends with the Parker family, where it seems like the Parkers in the 1830s were really the first family to encounter the Comanches. And then with Quanah Parker, her son, you see the last great war chief who was able to unify a lot of the remaining bands. And it's just, it's fascinating how the, the destiny of the Parker family and the Comanche people are so intertwined and how from late 1830s through the early 1870s, it's just this really incredibly rich narrative Oh, yes, definitely, definitely. He very likely saved the Comanche tribe. So he kind of, by becoming the, you know, this this half Comanche, half white dude who is who essentially could live between the two worlds. And in a way, it was probably not an adjustment that he wanted, but it was the opposite of his mother to where he, you know, was a great Comanche and he was perfect for that. And then adopted to the politics and all that shit of the white man's world really well. And like you said earlier, he appears in a movie you can watch on uh, YouTube. It's called The Bank Robbery, uh, 1908, directed by Bill Tillman, who was a great like Old West lawman, and he also stars in it. Um, and uh, I think Heck Thomas is also in it. And then also Frank Canton. And Frank Canton is the guy who is the villain in the movie Heaven's Gate, played by Sam Waterston. Oh, wow. Yeah, so you got all these, like... uh, That's the craziest thing is when, like, the Wild West bleeds into Hollywood and how, like... I mean, John Millies calls it into the fact that, like, in the early days of Hollywood, how there were still, like, bandits and outlaws living in the valley. It's it's like... It's it's a weird transitional period. It's like you almost feel like the Wild Bunch could have been living out there in Burbank. Yeah, you have outlaws going and doing like a movie about their old exploits and then uh, reverting back to being outlaws and then dying in a bank robbery and stuff. So it's pretty interesting stuff. And uh, John Ford at one point did want to do a movie um, about Quanah Parker uh, before The Searchers. Um, so that that would have been interesting, too. All right. So let's dig into the book, The Searchers. Uh, I have not read it. You have. So you have me at a, uh, a sensory disadvantage. So I'm just going to sit back and, as the old expression goes, the, the floor is yours. Uh, yeah, it's um, it's a good book. All the structure, tons of scenes, tons of dialogue, most of the characters, most of the events are the same. Um, there's just, you know, uh, Nugent just... Uh, does different things here and there. And the book was, it was like serialized, but published in the early fifties. Yeah. It was serialized at one point, uh, called, I think the, uh, the avenging Texans or some terrible title, <laughs> something like that. Um, that, that, that was the, the what it was called, uh, when it was, had been in a serialized form. Um, Alan LeMay, he, he, he started as a, as a novelist. Uh, he wrote uh, his first novel was called uh, Painted Ponies, and it was actually a sympathetic story about Native Americans, about Cheyennes trying to get to their homeland. 
and they get imprisoned and they try to escape and then all the men and women and children are killed and in it and it, it was released in uh, 20, 1926 and then serialized in 1927 and in it the you know the whites are all basically kind of racist and greedy and the Cheyenne are shown as honorable and then in uh, 39 he gets a job in Hollywood working for Cecil B. DeMille um, he uh, just hated that. He hated working for Cecil B. DeMille. He hated working in Hollywood. Um, Along Came Jones was based on one of his novels. Um, he wrote this uh, horrible uh, Randolph Scott movie called The Gunfighters. It was a really, really, really stupid movie. But anyway, he, he'd worked here and there, and then he wanted to start his own production company and uh, try to direct the film. I think he only directed one movie. But uh, in one of the production, uh, productions of a movie, uh, 1950 movie called The Sundowners in Texas, he uh, somehow met um, the 84 year old uh, Ben Parker, who, you know, was, uh, you know, a distant uh, relative of the Parker family. And uh, he had generations worth of family documents. And he was actually old enough to know uh, to have known at some point. Um, the survivors of the uh, 1836 Parker massacre. So um, when LeMay was wanting to go through his stuff, uh, Ben Parker was kind of surprised because he wasn't really interested so much in uh, Cynthia Ann Parker, which most people would have been. He wanted to know about this character of James Parker. And so he, he studied him. Um, and then he also researched uh, 64 different uh, accounts of Indian abductions and kind of took from each one that he wanted. There was another guy that probably served as something of an influence too. It was a guy named Britt Johnson, who was actually an escaped slave who had family members um, abducted by the Comanche. And he had a similar mission of, you know, um, searching and uh, trying to get them back. So by this point, uh, Alan LeMay, you know, he he was he was quoted, I think, in a letter to a fan or something. Uh, he said a great deal has been written about uh, historic injustice, uh, injustices to the Indian. Uh, he said, I myself wrote a book highly uh, partisan to the northern Cheyennes. I thought it was time somebody showed that in the case of uh, the Texans, at least uh, there were two sides to it and that the settlers uh, had understandable reasons to be sore. So yeah, like um, Ethan Edwards' mother was killed by the Comanches. I never even noticed it for years, but like her gravestone behind the house, you see her name, and on her gravestone it says "killed by Comanches." And I think a lot of people forget that or overlook that. Oh yeah, exactly. So, but but that's also just funny because that almost sounds like uh, a quote from somebody today. I uh, people that don't know much about westerns or don't know much, even just about just American culture don't realize that sympathy for uh, natives and what we did for them is not some kind of thing that just didn't happen until, you know, Marlon Brando. Yeah. You know, or until dances with wolves or something that it ebbed and flowed. That's why you have so many of those Edward S. Curtis photos from the early 1900s in the twenties, people were uh, considering what they'd done. There's silent films about how mistreated Indians were throughout for the 40s, 50s or whatever, you would have, of course, the ones where they're just cannon fodder and they're just getting shot down indiscriminately. But there were a ton of movies that were um, sympathetic. And even if they were the bad guys, they would usually put in some kind of, uh, um, you know, motivation of someone got killed or land or da-da-da-da. 
Also, uh, a lot of times people overlook that a lot of these flicks, like take a movie like Fort Apache or take a movie mm-hmm. like, like Stagecoach. There are some, I guess Fort Apache is more of a sympathetic portrayal than Stagecoach, but a lot of these people who were working as stunt people or as actors in these movies just loved the gig and loved the work. And I know people have very mixed feelings about John Ford and John Wayne. I'm not going to dictate how anybody's supposed to feel about them, but when you talk to like the Navajos that actually were working with John Ford on his movies, like they would call him things like tall leader. And they, they had like this affection for him. And like, John Wayne would use like his private jet to fly the cast around so they could attend weddings and not miss shooting days and things like that. It's as, as is the case with all things. It's silly to even say this history is complicated and it's, it's a mess, but yeah, yeah. people, a- people love to cling to their hate or love to cling to their simplistic narratives. I, yeah, I, I've got I've got a few different quotes about all the uh, all the um, all the Navajos that uh, that John Ford um, employed and and helped out. We'll we'll get into that too because it was a great thing for them. But you know, it is also multifaceted in a sense. But, yeah, because you're not portraying um, the Comanche as Comanche; you're portraying them as Navajo in the movie, basically. It, 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 it is just funny though to be like to get a quote from a guy in the '50s talking about like. You know, I'm so tired of, you know, oh, the, you know, the poor Indians portraying them as these poor, poor victims. It doesn't sound like um, that. It doesn't sound like a guy from the 50s because everyone's assumption is that, you know, they they that uh, uh, everyone in the 50s just considered them evil people. So uh, but, you know, he did his research and he did research the types of things that the Comanches would do. It was a it was a horrifying thing. There's no, um, you know, I'm. At one point, you have to judge a culture to a certain extent. Obviously, point it back to your culture too, but you can't uh, pretend like what you know. What a beautiful culture when they're gang raping people and you know cutting well, their dicks off. That's one thing off. that gets so, lost in today's conversations about victimhood and oppression is that the story of the Comanches, while it's filled with so much violence. It's also a story of strength. And in his interview on the Joe Rogan Experience, author S.D. Gwynn says, like, that's one of the things he wanted to call attention to is that you're talking about a group of twenty to 30,000 people, 5,000 of whom are warriors. And yes, it is a horrible calamity that their culture was driven under reservations and driven into extinction. But along the way, this very small tribe of people managed to defeat an empire, managed to hold off yet another empire. And so you can couch it in terms of a story of victory and strength and like you know resistance etc and i just feel like people just love their victimhood narratives it's like victimhood porn they just can't get enough of it and the comanches would never want to be betrayed or thought of or described in those terms exactly exactly a a, a comanche of that era would have more in common and more respect for a character like ethan edwards okay a racist you know violent man than some fucking goober who knows nothing about the Comanche and is just going, Oh, that's not what, ha-, you know, and they suddenly become experts, uh, you know, and, 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 and round up just, all the woke folks on Twitter and send them back in time to a Comanche camp and let them all get their, their dicks chopped off. <laughs> well, when you do, when you do look back to policy, oftentimes was like, no, 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 no. And the Comanches would just, yeah, they, they would take advantage of that. Like that, you know, so take uh, take the gifts, I, I, go go spend the winter somewhere uh, else, and as soon as spring and summer rolled around, it was businesses back to business as usual. Yeah, exactly. So so he did his research into the Comanche. He knew the types of things that they did. 
so he he moved it up uh, from the uh, 1830s to the to the post Civil War era, so that the James Parker surrogate character could be a disgruntled uh, Confederate that had never surrendered and stuff. Um, his character in the book is named uh, Amos Edwards, um, but they when they did the movie they changed it because of the Amos and Andy show. They didn't want people to gotcha. be thinking of that. The name Ethan is actually the name of uh, Martin Pauly's dead uh, father in the book. So, um, so anyway, um, uh, um, the character of Amos or the Ethan Edwards surrogate, uh, he uh, he's it, it is spelled out that he is in love with his brother's wife, but it's not mutual. So that's something that they added. Interesting. Uh, that's one of my favorite parts of the movie is this repressed romance between them and. John Ford doesn't necessarily excel at these scenes, but this one scene always gets me every single time when you see him kissing Martha on the forehead and Ward Bond has his back turned. Some say he's oblivious because of the the use of depth of field with VistaVision. I think that Ward Bond's character is very, or Reverend Clayton, is very deliberately ignoring what is obvious to everybody in plain sight, that he's letting oh, them yeah. have their moment where she can fold up his rebel coat and things, and like she's got so much affection just for his, his belongings, but he wants them to have at least that one moment before they're separated as they go off on to, to look for the missing cattle. Yeah, yeah, he's, yeah, he's not oblivious. The way he's... The way he is just has his eyes locked forward. He exactly, is he's like willing himself to look directly forward as opposed to yeah. looking side to side at all, and it's beautiful stuff. And the, everything in that house in the beginning, so many incredible master shots where there's so much action. It's incredible just how much story can be packed in with no cuts. Aaron, Martin, come on up here. Come on, raise your right hand, Martin. Yes, sir. Raise your right hand. You are hereby voluntary privates of Company A of the Texas Rangers, and you will faithfully discharge... Hey, can I go with you? Go get my shirt. What? Uh, where was I? Faithfully fulfill. You will faithfully discharge... Mrs. Your... Edwards... Shut up! You will faithfully discharge your duties as such without recompense or monetary consideration. Amen. That means no pain. I'd better get a shirt on. I man. ain't going volunteering until I've had my coffee. Now drink your own, Reverend. Well, just call me Captain. Captain, the Reverend Samuel Johnson Clayton. Mighty impressive. Well, the prodigal brother. When'd you get back? I ain't seen you since the surrender. Come to think of it, I didn't see you at the surrender. Don't believe in surrenders. No. I still got my saber, Reverend. Didn't turn it into no plowshare, neither. Engines did it, Miss Edwards. Cattles or cowas. Old Mose knows. Yes, sir. Oh, shut up, Mose. Thank you. My mm. cattle is being run I'm counting on you to look after things while I'm gone. You're not going. Be sure he is gone. I already swore him in. Well, swear him out again. I'll go with Even you. Even I don't think I should. I got a response. Stay close, Aaron. Might be this is wrestlers. Might be that this daughter and old idiot ain't so far wrong. Could be Comanche. Kind words, Ethan. Thank you kindly. Children, go with Lucy. Oh, Ma, I want Ben. Comanche, huh? All right, I'll swear you in. No need to. Wouldn't be legal anyway. Why not? You wanted for a crime, Ethan? Coffee, Ethan. Thank you, Martha. You asking me as a captain or a... Preacher, Sam. I'm asking you as a ranger of the sovereign state of Texas. You got a warrant? You fit a lot of descriptions. 
Figure a man's only good for one oath at a time. I took mine to the Confederate States of America. So did you, Sam. Stay close, Aaron. Yeah, no, no camera movement, no cuts, just sitting there. And uh, and then also one of the things is when when Ethan first gets there and he kisses um, uh, Martha on the head and just her reaction, her closing her eyes and stuff, it's just all told there without having to uh, to uh, really lay it on too thick. When I first the first time I saw the movie, I didn't notice it. You know, I was a dumb fucking kid, but I didn't even put, yeah, I put it together. I was twenty when I first saw it. But one gets the sense that almost that there's a good chance that Ethan went off to fight in the Civil War and also went off to fight down in Mexico afterwards, just as a way of staying away from her because he couldn't ha- handle the fact that she was married to his brother. And it's just like, it was just better for everybody if he just stays away. Yeah, yeah. And Nugent lays some of that stuff out. I'll, I'll read some of the things that he says because it does lay out uh, certain motivations that um, might not be uh, totally clear when you, when you watch the film. So anyway, so in the book, uh, uh, yeah, that, so that's not a reciprocal thing. He's in love with her. She ha- has no idea. Um, Martin is not a, he's not a half-breed. It says he's got dark skin, but uh, he's, or he's not a half-breed in the movie. He's just uh, he's one-eighth a Cherokee, yeah. Cherokee, yeah. Um, least, that's what they tell him. He doesn't really know, but uh, yeah, Ethan's like, fella could like, mistake you for a half-breed. And anyway, it's, it's, yeah. but... Ford has a certain style of comedy. For some people it works, some people it doesn't, but there are moments that make me howl. But watching just John Wayne glaring at Martin Polly at the table while he's while everybody's like taking their helpings of the food being passed around, it just makes me laugh just watching John Wayne be mean to um, yeah. to Jeffrey Hunter the whole because I'm I'm not the world's biggest fan of uh, Jeffrey Hunter. I much prefer someone like Montgomery Cliff in Red River, but watching mm-hmm. John Wayne be mean to Jeffrey Hunter just it always makes me laugh. Yeah, it helps because yeah, Jeffrey Hunter is such a fucking gomer. But yeah, uh, he's miscast uh, in my in my opinion. Well, yet another one of my complaints about uh, a movie that I adore, but I've got many complaints, and Jeffrey Hunter is one of them. Yeah. So and then uh, he wasn't found by um, the Ethan Edwards character in the book. He was found by uh, by the brother. And uh, actually, it a lot of the book is very detailed. So when you actually start to know the history, it is it laid out in there. Um, his family, Martin's family, was. Uh, killed actually in revenge for the killing of Iron Shirt, the guy wearing the gotcha. Spanish conquistador armor. Armor. So that was a revenge raid. And uh, Ethan character in the book has um, a lot of this, a lot of speeches that probably wouldn't work with John Wayne. So that's the the one speech with Mrs. Jorgensen. We are Texicans, and da 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 da. And my bones in the ground. You know, that speech she gives. I love it. It's, it's beautiful stuff. Yeah. Her character is one of the most interesting characters. Like this movie, when you first watch it, of course, John Wayne's John Wayne. But as you watch it many times over, you start to fall in love with some of the more, I guess, like lesser known ones. And she has this uh, incredible, she says, it just so happens we be Texan. Texan is nothing but a human man way out on a limb this year and the next and maybe for a hundred more. But I don't think it'll be forever. Someday this country is going to be a fine, good place to be. Maybe it needs our bones in the ground before that time can come. And of course, like Lars is always like, Oh, she like she, she used to be a yeah. school teacher. The that so that speech is is said by um, the Ethan Edwards character in the book, which just yeah you, know, you know just what just does not feel right. And they're not the Jorgensons, they're the Mathesons in the book. They're actually Quakers. 
which is oh, I, uh, I, I of, love the Jorgensen's like next time I race pigs by golly you never hear about anybody running off pigs or bumblebees I mean he's just a, a John Ford regular he's in a million things like uh, Grapes of Wrath but just he's got so much personality oh yeah yeah and in the book it's so annoying because he's, he tries to write like Quaker dialect so they say the and thou and it's oh, just no, you know, no, no, yeah. annoying yeah. Give, me, so, give, uh, give me my Lars yeah, and then so like Charlie McCory is in it, uh, Mose Harper. Um, they are they. Charlie McCory is described as a little dumb, but uh, not not to the level that uh, Ken Curtis is. And Mose Harper is kind of described as a little bit of an old coot, but not a totally insane person. Not a, not an eccentric. So, I mean, Mose once again. This movie's filled with astonishing characters, but just the way people talk about Mose and he's like, Mose Harper, like, why don't somebody bury him? Or just in the way he's just like, thank you kindly, no matter what people say to him, even it's like the worst possible insult. But yeah, Hank Warden, a legend of the, of Western cinema. And this is probably his most memorable role. Oh yeah. And so they, so the, so the book just it's in, in certain aspects, it's, uh, it's, it's overall darker, but I think there are, places that the movie goes that that are a little bit darker than even the book um but like you know so when brad uh runs out to the comanche camp you know in the book he gets ripped to pieces after the massacre uh of the ethan edwards characters carrying around martha's severed arm Ugh. um yeah and the and um uh and and there's and you know the the sure as the turning of the earth is from the book that dialogue uh and uh, it, it seems to know a lot about the Comanche tribes. They have a hard time tracking the Comanches because they don't know which tribe did it. And they've got all these tribes that they have to try to – they've got dozens of tri Comanche tribes that they have to figure out. Is it this one, this one, that one? Uh, and the character Nesby in the film who gets injured um, early on in the book, he's injured and he ends up blowing his brains out. So it's just like well, it's, you can it's back just, out anytime you want, Nesby. Like the way Wayne says Nesby with such condescension and scorn always makes me howl. Oh yeah, yeah. And then uh, one of the things, and one of the brilliant things that the movie did is uh, Debbie and Scar. There, Debbie does not become Scar's like wife or lover. He becomes like a daughter to him. Gotcha. Uh, and so when they do find Debbie. She uh, can initially only speak Comanche, but they can speak Comanche too. Uh, and, and they basically, they tell her, you know, Scar is the one that killed your family. And she's like, no, he's my father. Some whites and uh, some other uh, Indian tribe were stealing cattle and they're the ones in the command that killed my family and the Comanches uh, rescue me. And then so um, um, Amos, the Ethan Edwards character, says for her to check this buckle that scar has which is actually he got it from martin Polly's parents because he's you know when they you know in the movie and they say when he tells martin Polly like that With scalp was the scalp belonged scalp. to your mother yeah. yeah so uh there's this inscription from ethan to judith because martin Polly's dad is named ethan in the movie um on the belt buckle so when she goes back um, I guess she goes and sees that and realizes what they're, what they're saying is true. So then she runs off just out into the wilderness. So then they attack the, uh, the, attack the Indian village like in the movie. Amos sees uh, this girl who he thinks is Debbie. And uh, he still is potentially going to put a bullet in her brain. But it's not uh, necessarily like uh, it doesn't have the weird like racial sexual sort of miscegenation um themes of 
the film that the film really minds. It's there, but it just doesn't, you know, uh, in, in the book, um, um, Debbie is about to, um, is, is actually about to get married to someone. So you almost got to have the idea that she hasn't um, slept with any of the uh, Comanche uh, bucks, as they say. So anyway, he sees this girl and um, he thinks it's Debbie. So he pauses and it turns out it's not Debbie and she uh, shoots uh, him dead. So the Ethan Edwards what? character dies in the book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, 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 might, I might have to, I know the, the cliche always is the book is better, but I might defer to John Ford or Frank S. Nugent in this situation. Yeah, yeah. Parts of the book are better. Parts of the book, I would say, are, are superior. But but uh, no, I mean, the book is a good book. It, it's a, it's a very good book. Do we ever find out in the book what that thing is on uh, Reverend Clayton's butt that they're chopping off at the end of the uh, the battle? Because you always think, oh, is it an arrow? Is it buckshot or what? But I thought like, he got... I thought the suggestion was that the kid, that the that the uh, John Wayne's uh, son, Patrick Wayne, poked him with a knife, with the perhaps. Because like yeah. it, it's always been like vague to me because it's like, oh, did you get injured? And he's like, no. And he kind of walks off. I always thought maybe like, they're cutting a, like a boil off of him or something. But it's ne- I've I've been watching this movie for twenty five years, and it's one of the great mysteries to me. Like what happened to I, Clayton's buttocks during that battle? I am certain he got stabbed in the butt because. I think that you Boy, see the Patrick character really, really apologetic. And I'm pretty sure that um, it's more laid out in the screenplay that that is what happened. Gotcha. So he got stabbed in the butt. I'm going to confirm that for you. Um, <laughs> so, so anyway, um, Martin, after the aftermath of, you know, this raid of the Texas Rangers, which, you know, is really close to what they would actually do, get them in the morning, stampede their ponies, and uh, just kill everybody. Martin then tracks Debbie's footprints out way, 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 way out. Like a day later, he I think he, or a couple days later, maybe even, he catches up to her alone. And uh, basically she, you know, she realized that her father, her stepfather had killed her family. And she doesn't know the whites. She can barely speak English. She speaks Comanche. She doesn't even have any understanding of the white world. He follows her out and, and she's kind of doing the thing of wandering, you know, wander seems like she's going to be wandering between, you know, the spirit world, you know, between the winds or whatever. Uh, but he catches up to her. He uh, is basically like, you know, come with me. I love you. Blah, 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 blah. She says, I have no family. I have no home. Blah, blah, blah. Um, and then but he's embracing her. And then she basically at the end of it says, you know, I remember it all. Uh, but you the most. I remember how hard I loved you. And then he holds on to her. She's all malnourished and everything. And, and you don't have any idea of how they're going to get out of there because they're like without food or water way out in the wilderness. But um, but he holds on to her. And uh, then he, you know, thinks that she seems all right and she falls asleep. And then and that is the end of the book. Gotcha. So Now, yeah, how would you so rate how. the book compared to something like you know, Shane or the shooters, like one of these really riveting entertainment, entertaining books. It's, it's good. Um, it's not like, it's not like an amazing piece of literature. I mean, all the building blocks are there. It's, it's really solid. The prose is solid. It's a good structure, good dialogue, but it's not like reading Lonesome Dove or Blood Meridian or something like that. Yeah. The, the characters are good, but they're not, they're not super strong. The prose isn't, amazing it's pretty well researched 
but there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of, there's pages of it that I'd cut out. And then also just having the movie in your mind. And despite the movie's flaws where it takes things from the book and fucks some of them up, I think, but, um, but the movie just has, uh, a certain amount of like poetry and just like, you know, uh, understanding of storytelling to condense, condense certain yeah, this elements. This Ford so. when he's at the height of his powers yeah. where he's got all of his movies in the past. So like whether you're talking like How Green Was My Valley or Grapes of Wrath or all these well, – or the Informer, his more kind of artistic films. And he's, he's already done the Cavalry Trilogy. He's already done Stagecoach. He's already done My Darling Clementine. I mean he's got so much experience at this point and he's old – but he's not starting to, like, his health isn't starting to fail yet at all. And John Wayne's at the peak of his stardom, and he and John Ford hadn't worked together in quite some time. And this is a big reunion. And it just feels like the stars were aligned for a visual, like, poem about the Wild West that my, my flaws are, are, are a few, but for me, they're kind of, uh, they're kind of severe. Like, I hate all the shots on, on sets, like whether it's watering holes or swamps or whatever. I just feel like the rear projection and, and like the actual like set sets just look so horrible on the whole in comparison to the glory and the majesty of Monument Valley. And as I mentioned before, I don't like the actor plays Scar, and I don't even really like Jeffrey Hunter, the way he'll melodramatically sob after shooting people. And I just feel like he's miscast yeah. in a lot of ways. That stuff drives me fucking crazy. Those but are, everything yeah. else... <laughs> pretty much just those makes are, my, are, my spirit those sore. Are, those are kind of my same my same uh, ideas regarding the flaws. The script is actually funny. It specifies that the swamp scene is going to take place in a set. There are weird things in the script where he will tell like the composer or uh, how to do the music, or he will tell the cinematographer, literally naming him by name and saying this scene needs to be lit by the this particular scene in uh, she wore a yellow ribbon. So it's got funny stuff. Uh, uh, sides the the sets when I first saw the movie really bothered me and I still would obviously prefer a way for them to shoot at night on location because it's so incongruous but at the same time you know and it's probably just part of um, seeing having seen the movie so much and getting used to elements there's a weird like surrealistic kind of artificial aspect to some of the sets, especially when they've got those yellow and red lights pouring in. True. To, I guess uh, like if it was a Howard Hawks movie and the whole movie was on a set like, like Rio Bravo, then it doesn't bother me. It's only in contrast to some of the most spectacular because, photography in human history <laughs> where it's like, Oh yeah, here we're in they, the hand of like a God and here we're back in a Hollywood backlot. And so it's a, it's the contrast is so jarring. Yeah. But I guess my thing too is like, and I could be wrong. Some, you know, some super film buff was probably will, will probably say this is you're totally fucking wrong. But but it seemed like uh, around that time to shoot on location uh, for a night scene, you almost always had to do day for night. Right. Yeah. Or, and there are a couple sequences I, like that when they're about to raid the Comanche village, they're shooting day for night. Yeah. And some of the and those actually do look pretty good. Yeah. But overall, I hate day for night. Well, it looks I, terrible I, in like the professionals, like the nighttime battles, it, and like, ordinarily day for night can look pretty rotten. But it it works in the pre dawn raid. Yeah, yeah. So it usually just doesn't look. It doesn't look like night. So so already there, and it's usually just so aesthetically ugly. It's yeah. just so. Even black if you've got Conrad Hall lighting it like you did on the professionals, it's still tricky. 
Yeah. So I even so so even like the fake sets, there's something about it. There's like a diorama quality or kind of like a a movie, like a, a museum display kind of quality that like you're in the natural history museum or something. <laughs> yeah. That I find a little bit surreal and I, and I, and I can enjoy it, but, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, like, you know, like, you know, like when you're watching like Tokyo drifter and then suddenly he's just on a set, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's just, okay, you're just going with it. But, but it's uh, like when, they're, get... when they're following them initially, like, you know, obviously the, the big debate between uh, Ethan and Clayton is like whether or not they're going to what, what are going to be the tactics for approaching this camp. And Ethan turns out to be right. And he's like, you know, like if, if you're wrong, like don't ever give me another. Uh, but when they walk in, they're walking into the area and they're hearing whistles and it just it makes the movie feel so amateur. And then it cuts to like three seconds later. And they're riding through this majestic terrain and they're surrounded on either sides. And it's like, all right, this is a fucking movie. Like, this is like a movie movie. And so once again, the contrasts are just very jarring for me. But I just, yeah. I wrote it. They're not a deal breaker because it's one of my favorite movies, but it's just something that I've never been able to quite fully embrace. I, I think there was a contemporary critic that said something like, the sets, the scenes on the sets could have been shot in a sporting goods store for how convincing, <laughs> you know, how convincing. They are, especially with the grandeur of it. Yeah, and that is true. You know, if you're watching Lawrence of Arabia, yeah, you don't want to suddenly, um, you know, get on some kind of shitty, shitty uh, backlot. So, 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 uh, the book Marion C. Cooper uh, acquired the rights. Longtime collaborator of John Ford. Yes, Mar- Marion Cooper was like a guy who basically um, uh, sort of resurrected uh, John Ford's career because didn't he produce like silent... Chang and things like that? I mean, he's like a major producer going back to the silent era. Well, he, well, he, um, yeah, he had uh, um, John Ford was having a bad time uh, um, uh, in the early talkies. He'd gotten drunk. I think Fox loaned him out to Goldwyn, and um, and he had a clash with Goldwyn. Left the set, walked off the set, came back super drunk and bruised and incomprehensible and Goldwyn had him fired, made him return the $4,000 he'd been paid. And he just kind of got this horrible reputation. But Marion C. Cooper had loved his work and wanted to work with him. And Marion C. Cooper, that guy has a whole podcast needs to be about that guy. I mean, yeah, I mean, he goes back. I mean, he's one of the fucking producers of King Kong. I mean, he's, he's no slouch. He's the director of King Kong and, and he, uh, signed up, as a volunteer to be a pilot in the, uh, for the Polish army in the Polish Soviet war and escape from a Soviet, uh, POW camp. He was a national guardsman chasing Pancho Villa. So he's a real adventurer. And, um, and then, so yeah, he ended up teaming up with John Ford and kind of resurrecting his career. Um, he worked, he was, he was the vice president of, um, you know, the Zanuck, uh, pictures. Um, and then they were going to make stagecoach. But Zanuck didn't want to cast John Wayne, so uh, so so Cooper actually resigned, and then uh, Ford just took it to Walter Wanger. So, um, and but then they later uh, collaborated on a bunch of uh, John Ford's uh, best films, and he was John Ford's favorite uh, favorite producer to work with. So, uh, yeah, that guy's a, a amazing dude. But uh, he, yeah, so he got the rights. Alan LeMay had such a horrible time with Cecil B. DeMille and Hollywood in general that he, part of his contract, he said, I'm not going to do any writing on this. Um, I'm not even going to see this movie. After working with uh, an asshole like Cecil B. DeMille, he did not want to work for an asshole like 
John Ford. So yeah, I mean, John Ford um, could be a rough customer, and people would—I mean, people who loved him dearly and worked with him frequently—talk about some of his idiosyncrasies and the way he could just abuse people on the set. Even people like Jimmy Stewart, and like you—they called it being at the bottom of the barrel. And he always had somebody who was kind of picking on, and he loved like the way that John Wayne's character fucks with Jeffrey Hunter throughout the searchers. They say it's very similar to young John Wayne's relationship with John Ford. <laughs> you just kind of yeah. constantly putting him in his place. Oh yeah. And, and actually at this time, John, John Ford had just done, um, Mr. Roberts with Henry Fonda and they'd clashed on some kind of thing. And, uh, John Ford ended up, uh, punching Henry Fonda in the face. Uh, he'd been drinking like just ridiculously through the production and he was just, all fucked up um and the movie ended up becoming a hit winning awards and stuff but he never worked with fonda again and he was then starting to be considered a liability again and so this was a chance to um you know get his career back him, on get, track. Him a, yeah. get him to do another western and and all that so so uh he immediately jumped on it and uh so then the book so then the movie was going to be produced by um uh, Cornelius Vanderbilt Whitney, who was uh, heir to the Vanderbilt fortune, he'd started his own production company with uh, Marion Cooper, and um, and uh, and he was very excited about working with you know John Ford and all that, um, and 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 actually uh, Cooper's wife plays uh, Martha. She was an oh, old actress. Excellent. Like, she, yeah, she's she, she's a marvelous performer. I, I love her character, and I love how this this film they just like a little army went out into the middle of fucking nowhere where there's like no water and no phones and any resources they needed to make the movie they needed to bring out there themselves. And they lived hard in all these horrible dust storms and they had so little power. Apparently like the famous scene where John Wayne is describing what happened or refusing to describe what happened to Lucy, like, what do you want? Like, spell it out. He had to do it twice because during the first take, it got ruined by Ward Bond because he plugged in an electric shaver to uh, oh, the camera, yeah, yeah, yeah. and apparently that they, they were so worried that like John Ford would murder him, nobody told John Ford the story of what had actually happened until after Ward Bond had died. <laughs> oh yeah, I guess Ward Bond was like uh, next to John Wayne was like John Ford's biggest like punching bag. punching bag. Yeah, I guess also I I've, I think I told this story in the podcast before. I heard that Ward Bond on the set, he had, his trailer was a parallel to. Um, to uh, Vera Miles. I like to walk around naked would, to try to get her attention. Yeah, he'd walk around naked trying to seduce her. Yeah, he wasn't in his uh, he wasn't in his uh, athletic diving days, but uh, yeah, if you look at him like in Gentleman Jim, which is like I guess seventeen or sixteen years earlier, and he's just a physical specimen. He's still you can tell he's still strong, but his butt's a little bigger, his belly's a little bigger. He's no longer. Uh, I guess what famous boxer is he playing in Gentleman Jim? I'm totally blanking. Um, oh my God, boxing historians are going to be. I haven't seen it. Sullivan, yeah, exactly. I, he plays Sullivan in it, and he's jacked as fucking it. Um, yeah. So, uh, uh, yeah. So the uh, the Cooper collaborations were Lost Patrol, Informer, didn't do Stagecoach because he had to walk away from it. Fugitive, Fort Apache, Three Godfathers, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, Wagon Master, nice. Rio Grande, The Quiet Man, Sunshine's Bright. So yeah, he legendary he, collaboration. Yeah, I mean that's yeah. like that's like half of John Ford's best movies. Exactly. So. Um, and then, uh, and then, uh, you know, of course, uh, you know, uh, Ford wanted, wanted Wayne, um, you know, to star in it. And then the role had to be tailored and written, uh, for Wayne. And, uh, you've heard the stories of uh, Ford seeing John Wayne in Red River and saying, Oh, I didn't know the son of a bitch could act. And, and, um, and, and one of the things is, 
and I guess maybe we'll talk about it even more in depth later, but but John Wayne's performance in this movie is amazing. I found him! I found Lucy! They're camped about a half mile over. I was just swinging back, and I seen their smoke. I bellied up a ridge, and there they was, right below me. Did you see Debbie? No. No, but I saw Lucy all right. She was wearing that blue dress, and she what was... What you saw wasn't Lucy. Oh, but it, it was, I tell you. What you saw was a buck wearing Lucy's dress. I found Lucy back in the canyon. Wrapped her in my coat. Buried her with my own hands. Thought it best to keep it from you. Oh. Did they... What was she... What do you want me to do, draw you a picture? Spell it out? Don't ever ask me. Long as you live, don't ever ask me more. And I think it is one of the best film performances of all time. And I know I'm, you know, I'm a Western guy, so people probably assume that I have some kind of bias to John Wayne or some kind of odd, weird connection or something. And that's not true. I think most John Wayne movies are pretty bad. But I think that John Are Wayne... Are you saying he, did, he didn't it, do a good job playing uh, Genghis Khan a few years later? <laughs> you know, I, did, I haven't seen that one. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to withhold that. But, but uh, you know, the whole story of him, like, after doing the big trail and it's a big bomb and having to just, uh, you know, work in B pictures for the longest time. But at that time, he developed his persona. He obviously based it partly on Harry Carey Sr. He based it on Yakima Konet, the, the stuntman. He would watch all the cowboy extras that would gather around the lunch counters waiting to have work in a movie and he'd watch how they moved and acted. Uh, and then Paul Fix, who was the, um, you know, a, a famous Western actor at that time. He's play, he plays uh, Pete Maxwell in Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. He trained John Wayne about his being graceful on screen. He's he one moves that told well. Everyone thinks he's like this big, giant kind of monster, but he moves like a big panther. And even as he got older, like the way he walks away from the house at the end after doing that Harry Carey pose, holding his arm, the way he's able to kind of swing and sway his legs around, you can tell he's got like full control over how he moves. And I know even later on when he's much older, when he would direct on things like the Alamo, he would scream at his actors like, God damn it, be graceful like me. And yeah, the way he moves is fascinating to watch. Yeah, yeah. Paul Fix was one that told him, point your toes to the ground and swivel your hips, you know, when you walk. Uh, and he was quoted later saying, acting natural the way the Duke can does not come naturally. And Wayne also developed this whole, his whole manner of, of, of talking uh, where he deliberately does that, you know, that everyone that does a shitty John Wayne impression yeah, does. That'll which is, be the day, which he says like but, 50 times throughout this movie. Yeah, but he does that pause in mid-sentence that he always does. And that was a very purposeful thing that he would do because he wanted to get the audience to perk up their ears. Like, you know, how's he going to finish this sentence? It gives like a thing. There are very few actors who can be on the screen with them at the same time and not just get completely blown outside the frame. Like we were talking earlier about how beautiful the framing was and the, the, the blocking is of the actors when they're all having breakfast. And when Ward Bond enters the scene, for a brief shining moment, he takes over and he's screaming about coffee and donuts and he's going berserk and it's like you know, everything's just chaos once he arrives. But the moment John Wayne starts sneaking up behind him, 
You're like, oh shit, I forgot John Wayne's in this movie. And then you can't look at Ward Bond anymore. You only can look at John Wayne. He just has that dynamic screen, screen presence. And like Mon- Montgomery Clift was able to hang with them in Red River. And like Dean Martin was able to hang with them in Rio Bravo. But a lot of actors just get pushed aside. Yeah. And this one, this one too, is because it's obviously such a great part. It's such a brilliantly wit- written part. And the, his character is basically, you know, he's a man of a certain amount of honor and drive and courage, but he is basically an unpleasant, negative person. Yeah, obsessive, but, has demons. Yeah, you see the dark side when he's when he's butchering buffalo to keep them from going into Comanche bellies. I mean, you see, oh, this guy is got the heart of darkness in a lot of ways. Yeah, but when you combine, yeah, and when you combine that with with his cultivated persona and he's been bad in a lot of movies i don't like him in true Grit. i think he's a ham in that i think he's terrible but it's just perfect he's in complete command and none of the laconic badass actors that uh people love that a lot of people don't like john wayne but they like these guys because they're cooler and of course i love these guys too but like a charles bronson a clint eastwood i love them i love their screen presence everything they don't have what john wayne has especially in this movie they don't have the depth they, they, they just they it's not there when when he comes back after finding um um lucy uh, what is it lucy yeah, yeah. And, and he's sticking uh, the knife in the ground yeah and he's just completely out of it and everything and and then uh you know harry carey jr um like where's your johnny you know, rev like, coat and he's like oh i must have lost it but not going back for it yeah and when he's basically asking did they rape her or something you know and 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 uh you know he screams at him uh, but at the end of uh, at the end of the sentence, he when he kind of trails off, he, he says, you know, don't ever ask me that again. And the way he makes his voice tremble so slightly, but it just does everything. It's, yeah, it's like it's, when Robert Duvall says they killed Sonny and the Godfather and his voice breaks like it's hard as hell to do that. But it's awe inspiring when an actor can just add that slight bit of cracking to a delivery and yeah, I, I I completely see eyeball to eyeball with you on this. I think if people only saw this and not any of other John Wayne's films, like, oh, he's a brilliant actor. It's the other movies where he's kind of hamming it up and kind of playing into the persona, perhaps. Like in the 60s and 70s, yeah. I think he did his kind of reputation as an actor, perhaps a little bit of damage, but he was making money with these giant hits. I mean, he had his, his fan base. But this and Red River are the movies to see if you want to see his chops. Exactly. And he, and then also I think the shootest, even though I don't think that's a great movie. Um, but, uh, yeah, because yeah, but, uh, and then just like the part where, where, uh, Mrs. Jorgensen's trying to give him the speech, don't waste your life. Da, 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 da. He's like, I'd be obliged if you get to the point, ma'am. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then he just, as she does her speech, he just ignores her. Promise me, Ethan. And he just looks at you guys come in like just well, the way it is. He swings his head to the Perfect. side and like a cool looking shot suddenly gets way cooler. It's like, wow, like he just totally changed the look of this shot by putting his face in profile and he looks so hardcore. Yeah. He, it's just, it's a perfect, uh, it's a, just a perfect, uh, uh, a combination of actor and material. And, um, if, if he's not the finest, uh, character in Westerns, he is in the, he's in the top two. What, I would, think. Be, what, would, what so, would be the uh, other contenders? My other contender might be, uh, you know, 
James Coburn and uh, Pat Garrett, really the kid. I think there's a. <laughs> well, what you I, need uh, is that classic oh. combination of like you need to be kind of conflicted and whether or not you like the character. And there's so many people who will not watch The Searchers because the star of the movie is a, a, a racist. But it's like that's the whole point of the movie. Is like what's he going to do when he finds Debbie? Is he going to save her and bring her home, or is he going to murder her? And you really don't know. And it's almost like you kind of forget each time what the hell is he going to do? And he finds this little girl because we've seen so many hints of just how dark he is. Like there's John Ford does a lot of this movie in medium shots because Vista vision is this incredible format where it kept incredible universal focus. But when Ethan Edwards meets a few girls who have been raised in captivity with the Comanches and the way the camera dollies in on him really quick as he scowls at them, you're like, Oh, this is like a universal monster who's like on the loose in the wild west. Oh yeah, and that's also kind of an interesting thing because it's in a way it's the inverse of the of of his introduction in Stagecoach. Yeah, when, it, when um, it, yeah when it, the zoom in that, that, is played a very different effect in, in that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then uh, and that's one of the few moments where uh, John Ford does a you know a, a camera movement that draws a certain amount of attention to itself, but um, a, you know because he 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 always thought like moving the camera too much distracted the audience. I know he, he told uh, what Fred Zimmerman, uh, the director of high noon, he said, you know, you'd be a, you'd be a a good director if you uh, stopped moving the camera around (laughs) so much. The problem is you gotta be so good not to move the camera, not to cut around, like to have the confidence that you're, you can just hold your shot. I mean, the beginning of the movie, I'll never forget. I I first saw this on Laserdisc my second year in college and I, my friends and I enjoyed it. We laughed. We had a good time. But then summer 97, in between my uh, second and third year at UVA, I went down to the Monica Four in L.A. to see this as one of their morning Western roundups. They always did Western revivals every summer. And watching the opening scene where Ethan's slowly riding up to the house and the family standing on the porch and the framing so beautiful and the music so beautiful and everything's so calm and so still, but it's really hard to do. Not a lot of filmmakers can, can stage a scene like that. But I remember at the time, having trouble breathing. I was so overwhelmed by just the power of the imagery combined with the music. It was quite literally taking my breath away and I was getting chills down my arms and there are just not a lot of filmmakers who can do that. Yeah. I saw this first as a, as a teenager after I'd seen the wild bunch and I was getting back into Westerns and, uh, and then I obviously always heard that this was one of the great ones and seeing this on a small TV on VHS, especially as a teenager, it was not a good idea. I was just confused uh, by so many of the, You're like, what? You know, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I was just like, what the fuck, you know? So, um, but, uh, I was able, uh, years later to see it. I think I'd maybe watched it a couple more times on video, but I was able to see it on an actual film print. My, you know, in my town, there was a brief time where once a month they'd have real film prints of old movies that they'd send. I saw my darling Clementine that way, uh, Lawrence of Arabia, Gone with the Wind and stuff. So, um, but, and then that was just seeing it like that. It was like, oh, okay, like this is, you know, I I mean, not that I didn't get it before, but I really get it now. It hammers at home. Yeah. You, it, this is it, a movie I've seen in the theater a few times. I got to see it at the MoMA a couple of years ago. It's funny, like in today's culture, everybody's always saying, oh, we don't like John Wayne. We don't like Western, blah, blah, blah. But here in New York, you know, the capital of wokeness, at the Museum of Modern Art, they showed this to a packed house, and they, you could have heard a pin drop. People were in an absolute spell. However, 
<laughs> my friend Nick Barry was there with me. Somebody down the row had decided, and they don't allow food or drink into the moment for the screenings at all, but somebody had brought what seemed like 30 plastic bags, and somewhere inside all those 30 plastic bags was like a picnic lunch they had packed, and they were just digging through these bags, trying to find their little morsel of food, and I completely lost my shit, and I leaned forward around my friend to scream at the person, but my friend Nick thought I was screaming at him, and he was like, what are you doing? Anyway, this whole thing happened in the middle of the theater the entire theater hated all of our guts for sh- shushing us and pointing at us but <laughs> <laughs> luckily we did not get thrown out of the uh, the screening but it, we interrupted things for a little while while i had my little temper tantrum yeah i mean people that can't hang with john wayne especially like classic movie lovers or whatever fine whatever but at the same time fuck you i mean people haven't canceled jimmy stewart and uh, he was, by numerous reports, was a racist. Walter Brennan was one of the most horrible racists. You know, this was just – there was people at that time. You know, what, what can you fucking do? And uh, I think but, Bill but Burr said it best. I mean, he was people reacting to that 1971 Playboy interview, which is the majority of the outrage online comes from this one interview. And I do not agree with uh, John Wayne's sentiments in that interview, and I think you can condemn him all you like. But – um. Bill Burr said uh, he was born in 1907. Like, what, did you, what do you expect, he thought? Like, just, like, get off your high horse. And I'm sure when we reach 2121, people are going to look back at us and think we are equally ridiculous. So, yeah, I, I think it's always a good idea to, to tap the brakes. But at the same time, you know, people have a problem with them because of what he said in that Playboy interview. I'm not going to disagree with them, but I'm also not going to throw out an entire that body is, of work. Like, yeah, that, if you, that, is, that, is, that is true. I also, in terms of that, I mean, I guess, uh, I mean, I don't, I guess, really have any insight. I can't actually say, but part of that to me feels like since that was like what sixty nine, early seventy one. Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I think that he was. Uh, I think that the the poor reception of the you know the Green Berets, the hippies, that he was kind of this representation of you know uh, uh, colonialism and a certain amount of nationalism and, you know, uh, and, uh, the fascist aspect of America and all that and conservatives. I think that he just even got more into that kind of shell. You know what I mean? You can get entrenched. If you like say I were to get thrown off Twitter for saying something and then a lot of people came after me for whatever it is that I may or may not have said, like then it's easier to find friends and allies who are not coming after you. So it's how people get so deeply entrenched. But like, I just try to be, when it comes to actors and their public statements, I try to be a little more philosophical where if I were to start writing off films and refusing to see them because of all the things that actors have said, you basically would have no movies left to see. Like, am I going to not watch Lars von Trier movies because a Shia LaBeouf said something idiotic in an interview? Like, like you start running out of movies to see. So I just try to focus on the actors, their work and there's more to John exactly. Wayne than that interview. And so if people choose to dig a little deeper, they'll see that like any human being, he was a human being of his time who was complex and had contradictions. But I, I want to get back to the movie. But one last thing just about whether or not people are hesitant to watch this movie. Like, I think in the end, what really matters is just like how film fans react to things. And obviously this film remains beloved to this day. But just so people don't feel like they're watching like some sort of forbidden film. Like this is a movie that in 2015 was voted number five of BBC's 100 Greatest American Movies. This is a movie that in 2007 was ranked by the American Film Institute as the 12th greatest movie of all time. Sight and Sound in 2012 ranked it the 7th greatest movie of all time. Um, This is included in the AFI uh, list of the 100 Greatest American Movies. It's 
like this is it should not be considered controversial to like the searchers but i feel yes. we're in a cultural moment where it's kind of becoming it and i just i'm pushing back all the way i will gladly die on the hill of loving the searchers and if loving the searchers are wrong then i don't want to be right there there was a there was this lady did this study and i think there was the 80s she she got um you know natives and, and whites and showed them the searchers and then questioned them about aspects of it and they you know uh they, she asked, who did you sympathize with? No one sympathized with Scar. The, the uh, more, a, a higher percentage, the majority and a higher percentage of the natives sympathized with Ethan Edwards above any other character. <laughs> so that's interesting. Um, and uh, and uh, the other thing that I found funny is that most of the uh, whites that uh, the, the, uh, did not like the, it was like, it was like only like, 15% of whites enjoyed the humor. It was like 60% of um, the natives um, love the humor of the movie. Like when which is one of the, gets kicked one down of the, the hill. A lot of people, yeah. So um, so I just, that, I thought, I thought That's that was- grounds for divorce in Texas. Obviously anecdotal. It doesn't necessarily make the movie not, uh, you know, uh, not, not have problems. But uh, so, so then Ford, um, he uh, hires- uh, you know, Fred S. Nugent, who, uh, you know, he, he, his relationships with his previous writers, Nunnally Johnson and Dudley Nichols had soured because he was an asshole. And, uh, Nugent was a, he was a, I think a New York times film critic. He was eventually hired by, um, Zanuck to, um, to, you know, to do writing, but it actually turned out what he, his job was, was to, um, read the scripts and criticize them. Um, so, uh, he never got anything produced. So he was basically just talking shit on all his fellow writers scripts, uh, which, so he had no friends and he never got anything produced. So that was a, that was a horrible, uh, time working for him. Um, so he went back to, you know, working for the newspaper. And when John Ford was shooting the fugitive in Mexico, Nugent went out there to write an article on it. And, uh, he'd already written like some really glowing reviews of John Ford's previous films and so he struck up a relationship with john ford and john ford said to him hey uh you should write my next movie uh and so that next movie was fort apache and uh nugent was like i am a new yorker i was born in, i grew up in new york i don't know anything about the old west so ford gave him a stack of uh history books and then he sent him out to apache country to do research and then uh you know after however many weeks uh, Nugent called Ford up and said he'd done enough research and Ford, uh, replied, good. Now forget everything you've read and we'll start writing a movie. Nice. So, I like it. Uh, well, Ford Apache so, uh, is, I think deserves to be mentioned as one of the best films that John Ford ever made. And it also, I think a lot of times people think, oh, he made a cavalry trilogy, therefore must be like a jingoistic, like pro cavalry stuff. He does show people in the cavalry doing horrible things. I mean, Henry Fonda's character in that is absolutely extraordinary. Or like, and getting back to the searchers, like when the, we see the cavalry initially, like, oh, like the gang's all here. Like they're like, these are the heroes. But then you say, oh, but they just butchered a village. Like people who yeah. are criticizing these movies on certain grounds aren't even watching the movie. Exactly. Well, well, that was something that he had brought to Ford movies. He strengthened the, you know, male, female relationships, um, he, and he brought in a certain amount of sympathy for the native characters, 
the short stories or the um, um, you know the 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 cavalry trilogy is uh, I can't remember the author's name, but you know he would write for magazines and stuff these kind of short stories, and um, they were very anti-Indian, very jingoistic. Even like his even his uh, um, son, the son of that author, said that that his politics were uh, right the right to uh, Genghis Khan. You know what I mean? <laughs> so. So like the, the guy was kind of a uh, a nut, and uh, and he softened those elements, especially in uh, Fort Apache, and she wore a yellow ribbon. He did not do Rio Grande, which is a little bit uh, more. Um, harsh I think it's the, on and it's by far the weakest of the three. I mean, it's got some yeah. great horse so, stunts with Hank Warden, which he does some. He and um, oh, I'm totally blanking on the Ben Johnson that when they're riding in the manner of the ancient Romans, it's awe-inspiring but the, the reason people like the cavalry trilogy is because of fort apache and she wore a yellow ribbon exactly exactly so so he started going out to uh ford's yacht and they'd be pounding out the script and pounding and, booze know. as well yeah that's, that's all they did on that the yacht didn't even have to move they would just get shit-faced yeah exactly and it was just a constant fight and uh ford said of writers you know he said make them mad and they'll work harder um, you know, and so he, he treated Nugent like he treated a lot of people pretty much like shit. Never, he was never invited to the set, which isn't uncommon for writers, but he wouldn't even invite him to screenings or anything like that. And, uh, he ended up, you know, Ford, doing Fort Apache, Three Godfathers, She Wore a Yellow Ribbon, Wagon Master, and The Quiet Man, which he was nominated for an Oscar. And, uh, and then, uh, uh, uh John Ford's son, Pat Ford, doesn't get a lot of credit, but he was kind of like he was an associate producer on a lot of the movies, but he was something of a production coordinator. And he would also work out concepts of, uh, you know, costumes, concepts of the characters, who the characters were. He did some writing. So uh, he was the one that came up with the idea of Wagon Master and, and him and Nugent wrote that one. And uh, John Ford said, I liked your script, boys. In fact, I actually shot a few pages of it. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. And it's cool seeing Wagon Master now getting rediscovered. It seems like just due to a couple of really good like Blu-ray re-releases. Because I remember in the 90s when I first got into Ford, nobody talked about Wagon Master ever. And now no. it's become like the Dark Horse favorite for a lot of people. And it fucking rules. I feel like it's only a matter of time before we tackle it on Wrong Reel. Oh, yeah, yeah. Wagon Master to me, I think, is um, John Ford's most perfect movie. I don't think it's his greatest movie. I think The Searchers is his greatest movie. But The Searchers is also him grappling with material that is maybe a, somewhat out of his reach, which is what also makes it interesting. But Wagon Master is just a simple, perfectly told Western, so it's totally in his wheelhouse, and I think he nails every aspect of that movie. I can't think of many flaws uh, with Mag Wagon Master. At the same time, I don't want to overhype it for people. It's just a, it's just a solid. Yeah, it's a West. down and dirty, just really solid movie with incredible, told with incredible craft, and yeah, I, I love it. And I think it, it should be mentioned along in the same breath as any of his other great ones, whether you're talking Stagecoach or Fort Apache or whatever. Exactly. But uh, but getting back to uh, the Searchers, you have some experience with music, writing and singing, etc. What is your feeling about like the Sons of the Pioneers, that opening tune and the way it comes back? A man will search his heart and soul. Go searching way out there. His peace of mind, he knows. 
chilling when it comes back in and the, they're embracing Debbie back into the household. But just as a fan of Western style music, do you have any strong feelings about the about this group? Oh, I love it. The Sons of the Pioneer is one of my favorite musical groups of all time. Um, uh, yeah, they're they're amazing. The guy who wrote it is Stan Jones. He wrote Ghost Riders in the Sky. Um, he'd done a multi a bunch of different things, but he also had worked as a park ranger. And I think John Ford met him on the Three Godfathers. He was just working in, at the park area there and. And um, and uh, he hired him to do music with for Wagon Master and other things. And of course, Ken Curtis was also uh, um, a member of the uh, Sons of the Pioneers. So yeah, the 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 song, yeah, especially at the end, um, yeah, just totally, just totally haunting, chilling. I love it. I, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, westerns I, very very rarely make me feel like I might weep, but at the end when the music kicks in. And Moses is there, and Debbie's there, and Ethan's there, and, and Lars is there, and there, you have this like incredible mirror image scene almost to Martha coming out from the in the very beginning. And when John Wayne strikes that pose, and apparently, and this might be legend, I don't know, but apparently the the widow of Harry Carey Sr. was there, and that John Lane, John Wayne had her in his eyeline as he did it. Yeah, she's she's um she's Mrs. Jorgensen, Olive Carey. Oh, that's. Gotcha. Sorry, I guess it was like maybe like Captain Obvious here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 but yeah, somehow yeah. I just never made that connection. Oh, so Mrs. Jorgen is Harry Carey's widow. Wow. Okay, I just yes. I'd never and made Harry, that connection. Harry, and Harry Carey Jr.'s mother. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, oh yeah. Um that that where I, I wanna tackle. But I but I just I wanna get a little bit into some somewhat of uh, uh Ford's process with with Nugent. Um, you know, Ford said a lot of stupid things. He said, there's no such thing as a good script, scripture dialogue. And I don't like, I never, never liked all the talk. I want to get things across visually. Um, I prefer to take a short story and expand it rather than take a novel and condense it. Okay. Um, but the idea that there's no, no such thing as a good script is just stupid. But, uh, Nugent said that what he learned from Ford is that, you know, character is not shown by what is said. But by what is done, characters yeah. must defining them through their actions. Yeah, Ford never fully surrendered to the talkies, which is true. And when you do see scenes in this movie, and even one some of the ones that are uh, that are weird and kind of mannered, with Jeffrey Hunter putting his, uh, you know, head in his arm and stuff, and it looks really overdone. Um, but but at the same time, that does look like something that would. Be in a silent oh film. yeah I mean, that's 1922 all the way absolutely yeah. when you're trying to trying oh. too hard to communicate something with like a, a big gesture which works beautifully in a silent movie but it just feels so weirdly out of place and like also he's next to hank warden who's laughing it up and having all this fun and it just it just plays in a really strange way for me but that that beat whenever jeffrey hunter does that melodramatic kind of moment of where he's upset it just fills me with rage i'm like please just kill this guy and get him out of the fucking movie yeah most of the movie is uh is either is either really good like naturalist naturalistic acting uh or or non-actors like olive carey i don't think she was an actor that just kind of have that assault of the earth just believability yeah she's like oh it's just a little bit of calico that's the way she says it you just yeah you but she's got the west in her bones yeah, exactly. But then there are also moments of just like really like over overdone overdone melodrama. But uh, um, uh, and so like you know, Ford just kept making him do rewrites, cut dialogue, cut dialogue, cut dialogue. And Nugent boiled down cinematic storytelling, or at least Ford's version of it, 
which is, you know, it's, it's, it's about upsetting the status quo. You start with the status quo, something upsets it. The disturbance is the story. And then you establish another status quo at the end. Um, and one of the examples is that novel opens with the, uh, Edward, um, um, yeah, they're, they're, yeah, they're the Edwards, the Edwards family realizing that the Comanches are going to attack them. And it's really suspenseful, has a lot of stuff from the movie with the quail coming up and uh, Ford, love, Ford and Nugent love that scene, but they realize like that can't be our opening. It might yeah. grab you in a book, but we need to, we need to establish what the status quo is and put that later. We need to make uh, Texas look like Monument Valley and have people believe it oh, and, oh, never, and never doubt it for a second. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, and so, um, and so that that's part of it. Nugent broadens the, the novel out. He expands characters. Like I said before, he makes them a little more funny and goofy and uh, gets a little bit more business here and there. Um, and you know, he, he, but he just, yeah, he worked his ass off and, uh, he died of a heart attack when he was 57 and his wife later claimed that Ford had worked him to death. 11 of the 21 films that he wrote were with Ford. And, uh, but he said, you know, it was, uh, it was rough, but a small price to pay with the best director in Hollywood. As for Ford, he said, uh, of Nugent, uh, he was a body and fender man. And he said he was a very unsophisticated person and he says he would always put in cute little bits of business which i always cut out which annoyed him greatly um so he was just kind of a dick this is after he fucking died um yeah oh, I, mean, like, guys- I, I admire ford's films but everything you're saying is consistent with everything i've ever heard i mean that uh, documentary oh, yeah. directed by john ford which bogdanovich did all of his actors tell all these fucking horror stories about him Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. And they loved him. They they the same way you can love and hate a parent all at once. That's the same relationship with his actors. But uh, but but what is funny? You do when you do read the the script. John John Ford obviously makes improvements of cutting things down, cutting dialogue down, trimming this, making this visual and that. But in terms of business, uh, John Ford added way more business into the movie than is in the script. The goofy. Uh, fist fighting and a lot of the other that's goofy... Ford all the way what, I mean my yeah. favorite film historian David Thompson does not like John Ford which always hurts my feelings but one of the reasons he does not like John Ford is because of all this kind of strange humor that he injects into a lot of his movies and increasingly so as he got older and it just yeah. doesn't quite work unless you're in the mood for it and if you're in the mood for it it's hysterical I mean when I'm watching Mean Streets and we see how Scorsese takes that stupid fight scene and puts it right into the middle of the movie and all of his, and, you know, and Keitel and De Niro and all of them are laughing and having a blast. Like, why is that scene being put in Mean Streets? Like, how come it isn't in the scene when Ethan comes home and sees the house on fire and it's one of the most epic moments in the history of movies when he rides up to the house with, like, a Hank Warden riding behind him? I mean, it's just so jaw-dropping. I guess I would turn around to you, like, why did Scorsese take the, the fight scene with, like, all that redneck kind of dialogue and put that in Mean Streets, do you think? I don't know. I've, you know, I need to rewatch. I need to rewatch me. I haven't seen that in so many years. I just watch it all the time. I'm trying to de- even, uh, I'm trying to even remember. Yeah, like Marty biting the guy on the, on the, on the yeah, leg. Yeah. Like, oh, that ain't fire. And, like, See, all... and the thing is like that stuff, like I think that scene on its own is, is fine. And, and, and I think, I think, the more you kind of watch the movie, you the, the the more you start to become like indoctrinated to aspects of it to where you're like, okay, you know, like yeah, spit over that piece of firewood. Yeah, whiplash. But 
but it is like a thing where um, if it was a different movie with a different tone, that's a f- I, I like that scene. It's kind of funny. The fight's funny. I love the part where he goes, somebody's fiddle, you know, and, you know, a lot of those like weird touches. But uh, yeah, but for this movie, yeah, it's 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 so off and it just doesn't feel right. And it's also just like we don't like we're getting to the climax. We don't need this <laughs> like they. he, they, he can you know you know what I mean he they, he can punch him they could be a, a quick punch up or something but the, he doesn't need to make a whole fucking meal out of this that that, that fight and, is and all the girls it, laughing and grinning and watching it it's so bizarre but once again when I'm in the mood to kind of give myself over to it I'm more than capable but if you were just yeah. like but it breaks the form of the film in a lot of ways yeah yeah and and and, and it had but like I said I I do like the scene it just it's just off and but Vera I do like, just looks so damn sexy in her bridal gown. I don't know if a girl's ever looked more more pretty in a bridal gown than Vera Miles in, in that scene. Yeah, I, and I love uh, I love uh, Mrs. Jorgensen, you know, looking out the window, and you're not supposed to watch this and stuff. So there's just great business, but or but it's she, like spank, this- she spanks. Um, uh, Ward Bond in the butt, and he kind of whinnies like a like a mule or a oh, horse. Oh yeah, that part's such a weird delivery. I, I love that. Yeah. Or in John Wayne's son shows up, and John Wayne exa- asks him to turn around, and he examines his son, his own son's butt, and says, "Yeah, that's a Yankee cavalryman." And he's like, oh, "I resent yeah. that, sir." And he's like, "I oh, just fun." I was like, "Why is John Wayne talking about like his son Patrick's butt in the middle of the scene?" It's just it's oh, he, because he because he's because of surrendering. He recognizes them because the Yankees would were surrender would surrender to him, like they were run off. He's calling them cowards. I gotcha. think that's what it's a, but it's it, it, but it feels kind of maybe sexual. <laughs> there is bit. that funny part where where Ethan is uh, patting Martin Polly with the fire, and he like he he I like just pats sure you're his butt. He's like comfortable yeah. or something, and it's just like a funny, such a funny like. Uh, He's like Ethan, are you um, all right? And, yeah, yeah like, are you all right? But uh, but I think in the book the that fight happens just a little bit earlier um and i think that that was probably something that maybe should have been earlier in the movie instead of when you're getting to the point where you want to ratchet it up to the yeah, end there's like 10 you minutes left I mean? in the movie let's focus on what's important yeah exactly uh, uh pat ford did a lot of memos about you know the tex like the texans and what their life is like and and about uh, uh ethan edwards and martin Pauly and he says they are not nice people. They are only a shade less barbaric than the savages they follow. He he basically you know he he lays them out. He has these like notes that that uh, you can you can look up. Um, he also talks about how Ethan is such a like a, a, a sadistic character. Uh, a modern man would find him psychopathic, but then there's a greatness in him, a courage, a relentlessness, a frontier skill. Uh, and he achieves his goal or more stable men fail. So they're already like very aware of the paradox of, of the Ethan Edwards character. Well, only a crazy person could stay on the trail for five years ch- follow, trying to follow his niece with like that single-minded determination. He never takes a break. Beaten, you know it. 
No. Our turning back don't mean nothing. Not in the long run. She's alive, she's safe. For a while, they'll keep her to raise as one of their own until, until she's of an age to. Do you think maybe there's a chance we still might find her? Engine will chase a thing till he thinks he's chased it enough. And he quits. Same way when he runs. Seems like he never learns there's such a thing as a critter will just keep coming on. So we'll find him in the end, I promise you. We'll find him. Just as sure as the turning of the earth. Yeah, exactly. And then, so he also says, uh, "No, we we hope to portray the Comanche with as much barbarism and savagery as possible." <laughs> but he also has a certain amount of sympathy of wanting to portray the reservation as a place of of, of degradation and hopelessness. Um, you know uh, that the Indians would want to escape from. So he he uh, he also he also specifies like that they're mixed a mixed blood group of not only Comanche but Mexicans, Kiowas, whites. Uh, 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 Apache, Cheyenne, and stuff like that. It also made me wonder because when I was reading about like um, Quanah Parker, it says that he had blue eyes um, because he was half white. And since they're specifying as part of it that they are, you know, wanting to portray the 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 Comanche as a mixed a mixed blood tribe, which they were to an extent, um, uh, because I'm wondering if like. If there's supposed to be some kind of suggestion that Scar, because he's the fucking guy, he's a German guy with blue eyes. He's a, yeah, a German um, Jew who looks about as yeah. much of a Native American as I do. And yeah, uh, it's but that is like that's a level. If that is what they're suggesting, that's a level of subtlety that just is too far. Um, it's and it's so. I mean, even though they're Navajo speaking Navajo, wearing 20th century Navajo clothes, it's just when you see him, and then you cut away to these actual indigenous people it's just like it's just embarrassing like yeah and there's on, i noticed this time there's one person when they're surrounded and you see there's one comanche who's wearing like the buffalo horns and i was like that is like the one piece of uh comanche attire that feels accurate i know that was like a, a popular thing it means a, a tribe that lived off eating buffalo so it makes sense yeah that some of their warlike attire would be like buffalo horns and things like that but yeah, it's I, for me. If I from the descriptions I read in Empire of the Summer Moon, when I when I imagine a Comanche, I imagine somebody who's lean and leathery and wearing a loincloth and not much more, but perhaps a lot of crazy fucking war paint. But they were pretty bare bones and stripped down. They didn't wear a lot of outlandish attire. Yeah, and this one they look like they just got like some ketchup and mustard on their face, <laughs> and then and these headdresses. One of the funny things is in the book. Uh, uh, LeMay uh, specifically describes the look of the Comanches and he specifies they don't wear feather headdresses and so it's funny that they would go that route they have a, he had wrote a note here that they would have Navajo Apache style boot moccasins and blanket leggings uh, tied to the waist to heighten the barbaric effect I have no idea what he means by that because <laughs> it doesn't they don't look any more brutal um that are, are scary than uh, anything. In fact, that's one of the issues is that the concept of the, uh, it's like when you're not seeing the Comanche, they're so they much are, more scary. Yeah. Yeah. And then when you do see them, you know, like John Ford, like his, like his, like 
horse riding chase scenes, riding through the camp, you know, tracking by on 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 a truck or, or whatever he did, are are just amazing. But I think his limited takes that he would do, his limited angles, so that it couldn't get fucked up in editing. When he's doing scenes of like uh, a a gunfight or a battle, it just is like stilted in a way where you're watching like John, like you're watching a guy, uh, you know, John Wayne shooting like once and then like five Comanches fall at the same time in a puddle. It's just like, it <laughs> doesn't, uh, it, it just doesn't, uh, he doesn't have like the, like the, the, the editing of like a Michael Curtis or something of that era of this, like the blistering, like, um, um, his guy, his, his gun firing scenes are just not, uh, they, yeah, the battle scene at the river for me is a disappointment. I love the the lead up when they're surrounded on either sides. It's like, well, Reverend, oh. looks like you got yourself surrounded. And he's like, well, I plan on getting myself unsurrounded. And like, that's killer. But then magically, somehow, when they get to the river, there's this giant distance between the two of them. I was like, all right, well, that doesn't quite make sense because they were right on their ass like one second ago. And then, yeah. Uh, yeah. so that the staging of that battle. But it's funny, like I might be annoyed by the staging of the battle, but there's little bits in there that I like, like when uh, when Moses is like, that for which we're about to receive, we thank thee, O Lord. Like these weird oh, deliveries, yeah. like they just make me laugh so goddamn hard. Or, or Ward Bond when he's like, uh, he's out of ammo and Wayne Wayne uh, throws him another pistol and he takes his hat off and throws, throws it back it his stomach. It. Yeah. And I, uh, uh, supposedly... That was not uh, scripted. It's not in the script. That's what it's you both- get with two actors who know each other so well and have worked with each other a thousand times. And they're just like the chemistry between those two performers has never been better, perhaps, except for perhaps in the beginning of Rio Bravo before uh, Ward Bond's character gets killed. Yeah, John John Wayne's reaction is just so uh, natural and they left it in. And I, I think this time it was the first time I noticed that John Wayne says something um, but there's no, there's no, you don't, you can't hear it. So I wonder if he, uh, he got muted, yeah. uh, cursed or did something. Yeah. That they had to take out. And Warbond, you can have when he, right, he's like, careful, it's loaded. He throws in the pistol and Warbond throws the hat back. But then as he's about to start shooting again, it almost looks like he slips and shoots like the ground first before raising. I was like, did you accidentally like pull the trigger too quickly? <laughs> but it's when anyway. I watch that scene, I, I, it always, there's part of me that gets nervous. Cause even though it's a blank, he does fire it in that same shot and throwing a, throwing a blank gun you could really hurt someone if he catches it on the trigger or something like that and those colt single action armies are like you know they the 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 hammer rests on the trigger so if you dropped it it would go on the pin and just fire so i always watch that scene like oh shit he could have like shot himself with a blank or something but that's a bit of business i think works like john ford sometimes the humor is tough to defend but that's a moment of humor and character between those two guys that i just adore Oh yeah, he yeah that stuff. The subtle humor is uh, is is great when he when he's and it's just so funny because so much of the uh, of the story and he it boils so much of it down to where he's only telling it visually and hinting at things and giving you clues but never spelling stuff out. And then when he gets to humor, it's just it's just just the goofiest uh shit you know it's it becomes hee-haw for for a few minutes but there's great humor like i love when they're reading that letter and uh and uh, she wasn't nearly recent- as old as you are like how old oh. does he think i am <laughs> well my, the part that makes me laugh even though it's i guess it's it's not really even that big of a laugh but when they're talking about like um the late mr futterman and then uh and then he goes that means he's dead. And then uh, Mrs. Jorgensen goes, oh, the poor man. Uh, <laughs> like, yeah. like it's just kind of a pitch perfect very delivery. Subtle, but I just, 
Yeah, I just she gives zero fucks. Idea. Death is a way of life. She's so familiar with death at this point, and all she wants is for the story to continue. But yeah, she's. But also considering that Ethan Edwards is the one that killed him too. Like it's just, and he's an awful guy. So it's just kind of a funny, like, oh, that poor man. Like it's just, uh, that's the type of humor that and I, this, I want to see. It's as if you appreciate the more you watch it, characters like her just grow with each viewing. We're like, oh my god, like this character is actually phenomenal, even though we only get her in a few scenes. Throughout, but I guess with the the times where I laugh watching this, it's not even necessarily during scenes that are supposed to be funny. Like when uh, Ethan's correcting Martin and telling him to stop calling him Uncle, he's like, "You don't need to call me Uncle or Grandpa or Methuselah." And he's like, "All right, well, what I call you?" He's like, "The name's Ethan." It's just those little exchanges are, are what make me crack up. Yeah, yeah, ex- yeah, exactly. And uh, and and that is really what they do. And a lot of the characters borderline, um, you know, they, they become borderline farce. I know that uh, John Ford told uh, Nugent to write parts for uh, Harry Carey Jr. and Ken Curtis, uh, but he said, you know, he said to him, uh, but don't uh, don't write him too good. Um, and Harry Carey Jr., I think he's great in it. But uh, Ken Curtis, I I do like him. I think he's funny, but but that character is just the deli- like, and he didn't want to do that line. That was just kind of a thing he would do jokingly and. John Ford insisted he do that. He was John Ford's son-in-law, Ken Curtis, at that time. Um, but just that hick, haul, haul, haul. Yeah, so he know. married a Comanche squall. Haul, yeah. haul. Is it called haul. a Colorado dryland accent, or is it a special name for it? Oh, I don't even know. It, yeah, there's it, a, I found it in the trivia somewhere where they, they had a special name for that kind of accent that's a, a total... Put on, but then, then again, that when he sings uh, "Gone Again," skip to my loo, yeah. like then it kind of works. So it's, a, it's, a, I have mixed feelings about that accent. <laughs> yeah, but uh, uh, so so when it came to uh, casting, um, the part of Martin Pauly, uh, uh, I guess John Ford really wanted Fess Parker, uh, the Davy Crock, the did Walt Disney Davy Crockett dude, and uh, he was eager for the part. And I guess at one point uh, there was a dinner party. And uh, at, at Olive Carey's uh, house and and Ford was like doing a weird sort of screen test where at the buffet line, he started swiping forkfuls of food off of Parker's plate just to see and, and elbowing him just to see what he would do. And Fess Parker just walked away. And uh, and uh, it was just a weird sort of way of him testing people. But uh, I guess it turned out that uh, Walt Disney later told him that, yeah, Ford really wanted you for that role. But you, you uh, failed the audition. Well, yeah. No, no. Actually, Disney wouldn't let him get out of his uh, his contract, unfortunately. So P- Parker was pretty bitter because he he did want to work with Robert Ford, and then Robert Wagner. I'm not Robert Ford. John Ford, and then Robert Wagner, um, who had been in Ford's uh, What Price Glory. He really wanted the part of um, Martin Polly. And, uh, and so, uh, he, he went to, uh, he read the script and went to Ford's office and, uh, John Ford, you know, said to him, uh, you'd like to play that part, wouldn't you? And he said, yes, sir, Mr. Ford. And Ford said, well, you're not going to. And then Wagner got up and headed for the door. And then, uh, Ford said, Bob, you really want to play the part? And he said, very much, Mr. Ford. And then John Ford said, well, you're still not going to. <laughs> so, so yeah, fucking dick. But uh, and then so through through Jeffrey Hunter through his agent, 
he uh, he um, you know contacted uh, Ford, talked to him over the phone. Uh, Ford said that he was nowhere near the type to play Martin. Um, and then uh, if, if you Hunter- could pick anybody from film history to play that part, who would you put? Who would you put in his place? Because I he's got a few moments where he kind of sort of wings me over, but then you'll have other scenes where he loses me again. Like I hope you die. Like this. I hope you die. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I hate that. Delivery. And then he runs into the runs into the rock. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh man. I mean, yeah. Montgomery Cliff, like you said, would have been great. Um, he he does good parts, uh, but uh, but uh, yeah, he just. Um, he, he does there's there's aspects of that are good but yeah um he is the weak link for me and my and the other thing is that he doesn't he doesn't uh w- well one of the things with the movie is it i don't think it does a great job of giving you the feeling of the passage of time the first one year jump really is a surprise when they return to the jorgensen's they, it's only through the dialogue that you're even aware that one year has gone by when they talk about, oh, I got your son killed and so on and so forth. But yeah. yeah, it's like until we see Natalie Wood, it doesn't feel like five years have gone by. And Jeffrey Hunter obviously is going from boy to man, but they could have done more scenes that make him feel more like a man by the end. And Give him a mustache. I mean, it's it's she it's cheating, but anything. But my other issue is that I don't feel that. Jeffrey Hunter's performance gives you that arc of being the dumb young teenage boy who then becomes this hardened, you know what I mean? Yeah, he Comanche. just stays the. I mean, if I spent five years on the trail chasing Comanche with John Wayne, I'd probably get a little tougher. But he's like, he stays the same the whole way through. Yeah, exactly. So that's 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 one of the problems because it doesn't the, the span of time isn't there and. A big part of that is just because Jeffrey Hunter doesn't seem to ever change while, you know, everything else is uh, um, changing around him. But uh, but then so I guess he went to Ford's office. Uh, he flicked his hair back to make himself look darker. And and uh, and he uh, got a He got a really dark suntan or something. He went in there and Ford's like puffing on a big cigar. And uh, he said that uh, Jeffrey Hunter said he stared at me for what seemed an endless time. And then grunted, take your shirt off. And then Hunter complied. And then after a long stare, Ford grunted again. And then he says, I'll let you know. So, <laughs> so that was that was Jeffrey Hunter's audition, Ford telling him to take his shirt off. And, of course, there's that uh, Maureen O'Hara story where she said that one time she walked into Ford's office and he was uh, kissing a famous uh, uh, male actor. So that's uh, that's. <laughs> So he sounds like he's about as eccentric as old Moe's. Like, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He just, yeah. When you just hear it's, there's something so like gross and diseased about and his sucking on the sucking on the handkerchiefs at all times. They're always like kind of wet and gross. Head, like the, yeah, just the black, the, the eye patch and the black glasses and the cigar and the wet, gross handkerchief. And he always thought he was like some sort of like lover. I guess in the 30s when he was getting in on with Captain Hepburn, maybe he was a bit more of a stud. But by the late 50s, he starts to look like a fucking gargoyle. Uh, yeah, he yeah he looks like he's rotting in 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 real time. And and then uh, and then uh, uh, he oh yeah he would just do these sick things like if Harry Carey Jr. would like mess up on a scene or something like that, he would make him in front of the whole crew pull his pants down bare ass. And kick him hard in the, in the in his ass, and then sometimes he'd force John Wayne, who didn't want to do it, he'd force him to do it. I mean, that's like that's, that's like, like fraternity just, hazing. 
Yeah, but you're just like, if you're on a film set, it's one thing yelling at someone or what, but it's like, put your bare ass down and kick him in the ass. And was his mom on set? Because she was acting in the movie when he was doing that? I don't know. But anyway. Um, you sound like people who perhaps spent too much time together and they've forgotten about codes of conduct that help people behave like well, civilized yeah. people. Well, there's so many stories that I think Ford punched Marino Hera at a party one time. He, you know, he just was punching people and just being being a dick. I mean, he's just he seemed like a horrible person. Um, although I guess he had his his moments. But so the uh, the guy funding the whole thing, Cornelius Vanderbilt Whitney, he had this idea. He had he had no like any kind of artistic talent or vision, but he really wanted to do this American history trilogy. And so he wanted the searchers to be the first in a trilogy of movies about American history. And he wanted to title the movie, the searchers for freedom. (laughs) Jesus. Yeah. Some people just should not be making creative contributions to anything. Yeah. So, so Ford would just ignore all of his notes. He, uh, he tried to get, um, he tried to get this uh, young actress that he was having an affair with a small part as the Mexican uh, lady in the in the cantina and Ford just ignored him. And, you know, so uh, he he seemed like a pretty, pretty, pretty uh, weird dude. But, uh, yeah, so the first stuff they shot, they went to Canada, Alberta to shoot the Buffalo stuff with uh, with uh, uh, John Wayne and um, and uh, Jeffrey Hunter stand ins. And then, of course, they went to Monument Valley um, and uh, uh, which, like as you said, no running water, no electricity, no phones. And I think uh, this is the yeah. seventh time that he shot a film in Monument Valley. I mean, obviously, it's John Ford's Valley at this point, but he never shot it better than in this movie. Oh yeah, yeah, it was uh, yeah, it was ninety miles from the nearest paved road. Um, there was there was this guy Harry Goulding who was like a, a sheepherder's son from Colorado, and he first saw Monument Valley in nineteen twenty one, and came back a couple of years later. And opened up a general store and kind of had it created it had a, some rapport with the Navajo, and uh, he heard that Hollywood was looking for uh, he was they were exploring Flagstaff for a new western, so he took like eighty dollars out of his meager savings, drove all the way to L.A. Um, and went to John Ford's office and had these photos of Monument Valley, and he said, "There's Navajos there; they'll work for cheap." Um, and you know, just have, look how scenic it is and all that. The next day he, uh, John Ford, uh, flew out there to, uh, to give it a look. And then he gave the guy a check for $5,000. And so that's, um, that's when he started, uh, with Monument Valley. And so he shot a little bit for stagecoach, like 90 seconds worth of footage. Yep. Um, but he, yeah, he would just continue, continue working there whenever he could, um, to, because he just loved it, but also just because he wanted to help the Navajo. Um, and also, you know, it was cheap labor. It was, they were getting paid well, they were getting fed well and stuff. So they liked it, but it was not, you know what I mean? It wasn't like industry scale or anything like that. Um, so anyway, and then, you know, like after, um, after, I don't know if it was my darling Clementine or whatever, he let them keep all the lumber from the sets 
and, and and all that. Yeah, I would love to have been there just to see what it was like for like Hollywood elite and the Navajo interacting, like little moments that will put a smile on someone's face. Like apparently one uh, Navajo child got seriously ill with pneumonia, and so John Wayne put him on his private plane to fly him to a hospital or fly the little girl to the hospital, and the Navajos renamed him the man with the big eagle. And, so I'm, and I'm not trying to pretend as if these moments of warmth erase, you know, genocide and starvation and broken treaties. But it is interesting seeing these people coming together and collaborate and forming these bonds and rapports. And yeah, I just think as always, it's, it's good to get into the, to roll up your sleeves and get into the details whenever possible. I mean, I think that a certain, certain people from that era, I think it was honestly more common to, to hold backwards views. Um, but, but in action, a lot of times they might act in a more, um, honorable way than even people now, you know what I mean? Like, um, just because he might have some stupid ideas about, um, the taking of, you know, um, indigenous lands or, or whatever. Um, and, uh, and, and, and I am not one of those people that is like, oh no, the, the Comanches got mad because the uh, whites were taking their land. The Comanches took the land from people. It's just, a, you know, it's just another act of tribalism. It's just a bigger scale. But, uh, but, but, but the whole point and is if the like, Comanches yeah, had had a bigger tribe. They probably would have taken over the whole goddamn country if they'd wanted to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. And they wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't ever bat an eye. Was that, as long as they were know. Buffalo to eat, that's where they were going to go. Exactly. So, um, and, and then, so yeah. And then, so John Ford, you know, he, he was paying the men, $15 a day, women $10 a day, kids $5 a day. They got a bunch of meals. There's interviews with extras and stuff, and they and they loved it. They loved John Ford. They called him the tall soldier. Um, you know, on um, on July 4th uh, of that year when they were when they were shooting, they made him an honorary um, member of the tribe um, and uh, gave him like this ceremonial deer skin and stuff. And and he was just so touched. He said that was the best. You know, that was better than any, winning any kind of the on any of his Oscars or anything like that. So he really did care about them. And and after the movie was done, there was a horrible winter um, that was called. Uh, what do they call it? I think they called it like something like uh, two men deep. That's what it was. So Ford used his military connections to to arrange uh, this thing called Operation Haylift to airdrop food, grain and other supplies uh, to the Navajo. So. So he he really did uh, actually um, care about them, um, even if you know he was not always portraying indigenous people. But in his movies, I don't know if I, don't, I can't remember if any of the, the movies the Indians in his movies are supposed to be Navajo. I don't know, but there is an interesting story where um, Ford was talking to to Goulding, the guy who had shown him the property in the first place, um, about the weather, like any ideas of how the weather is going to be. And uh, Goulding said to him, uh, you know, um, there's an old medicine man here named, um, you know, hosting. So I can't I don't know how to say his name, really. Uh, but he said, you know, you let me know what you want at four four o'clock in the evening and he'll fix it up for you for the next day. So Ford said, I want some theatrical clouds. And Goulding is like, I don't know how to tell that to him. What is a theatrical cloud? And he's like, you know, just pretty fluffy clouds. And then he goes, okay, we'll get it done. So then the next afternoon, huge, big clouds. So after that, 
uh, uh, Ford would, uh, uh, he nicknamed the guy Fatso, but the medicine man, cause I guess he was real fat, but, uh, he started paying him. Uh, he, he would give him, he'd give him whiskey and he paid him $15 a day to make sure the weather was good. And he said the guy never failed him. So, <laughs> so, so I don't know. But uh, that's that's one of the stories that they tell. Well, for guys who can be kind of like bullies and abusive for people like who they work with or who they view as like where they kind of blur the lines between family and coworkers, they are equally capable of being generous. Like they play favorites and that sort of thing. So if you might like John Wayne might be in the bottom of the barrel and getting yelled at for something. But then those people tend to have a, a tendency to then be like abundantly kind and sweet to other people all at the same time. So it just sounds like yeah, he's, he's just a, a very neurotic, strange dude. in a lot of ways who had the, the soul of a poet. Yeah. I think that's the thing. I think that he has to a certain extent, that same thing that um, Sam Peckinpah had in terms of a, a certain sense of a, a certain sensitivity, a certain poetic uh, aspect to who he was uh, a certain amount of, uh, you know, a, a, a intellectualism, not, you know, and I think that those were things that they didn't like. They wanted to be John Ford probably wanted to be, even though he did get in the war and get strapped on his arm and stuff. So he wasn't like he was a coward or anything, but John Ford probably probably wanted to be Mary and C Cooper, a guy who was a real adventurer. You know well, what I mean? A man. Fucking Douglas MacArthur or something like that, man. He really wanted. <laughs> yeah. To... So, so I think that's part of it. I know that there's a story, a famous story during the Depression. Some guy who was an a, an actor um, had fallen on hard times, and his wife needed an operation, and he went up to Ford, and uh, and, and there was a bunch of people around, and he uh, he was like, uh, you know, can you give me money for this operation? Like, you know, you're still making money, and we're suffering, and John Ford just flipped out, pushed me. I was like, how dare you talk to me like that? And you know, just was totally just fucking was livid then he went inside and then i guess he was crying and he wrote the guy a check and then hired him or gave him some kind of job or some kind of you know some kind of monthly payment or something so it's just like he didn't want it's like he had to flip out because he didn't want you know everyone around him to see that he was crying he's actually a big softy the same thing in that famous interview where he's on the desert out in the desert being interviewed by bogdanovich and bogdanovich is asking all these questions about him as an artist and his evolution as a storyteller and how wagon masters different from the searchers and like how, and uh, man who shot Liberty Valance. And rather than get like given to any like questioning about him being an artist, he just says cut. Like, he just w- would refuse to go. Oh, there. Yeah. oh yeah, 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 exactly. He, uh, he has those quotes like I'm the, I'm this, so they you know some poet of the West and that's, that's bullshit. You know, I just, I just, I just made these Western stories. Yeah, I mean, he had that. Well, I guess it was a, a meeting at the Directors Guild of America one time where everybody's having a conversation about something, and he stood up and introduced himself and said, "I'm John Ford, and I make westerns." Like he just liked to be very plain and simple, and it could be a bit of an act. But once again, he probably was, like you said, embarrassed about his artistry and had to do this tough guy routine as like to, to compensate. All right, so we're in the final stretch of this episode. We've talked about history, we've talked about material, we've talked about the film itself. Any l- Lingering thoughts about the legacy, because obviously this is a film that has inspired a lot of filmmakers and just a lot of just fans of Westerns, period. But now, I guess, what are the what are the most uh, important kind of final arguments or points that Mr. David Lambert would like to make about this film? Oh, OK, OK. Ah, uh, the legacy. Hmm, hmm, hmm. 
Uh, I mean, I mean, like, what yeah. What would you I say mean, to a person out there? Now, obviously, no one's going to watch it on VHS and pan and scan the way you did as a teenager. But if you were to try to sell a 19-year-old cinephile on watching this for the first time, yeah, make 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 your case. Uh, well, I don't know. I I I, I don't know. I don't know. There there. Hmm. Hmm. Can, can I get back to that in a second? Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Uh, there 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 are some things that that I kind of wanted to uh, just draw attention to things that I, that I do really uh, uh, like about the film and certain things that um, got a little, a, a little turned from the script in uh, some positive ways or some things in the script that um, really take what is subtext in the movie and make it, make it text. And um, you know, it, it is, you know, the, the whole thing about the unrequited love between Ethan and, uh, his brother's wife, uh, you know, it, uh, it, it's, it specifically says right in the script, Ethan is, and always has been in love with his brother's wife and she with him. So we have that. But, uh, what I, what I like too, is this description is, you know, as the scene plays, the audience must always be conscious of the byplay of glances between Martha and Ethan. And as they face the prospect of being left in this house together. So that, I guess crystallized something to me about the reason or maybe part of the reason that um, Ethan takes his brother's place, um, you know, to go with the, to go with the Texas Rangers to investigate the, um, the stolen cattle because it's almost like a thing of like, he doesn't trust uh, himself he's to be alone loved, in the house with her. Yeah. He's in love with her, but he doesn't, yeah, he doesn't, uh, he can't stand. He wouldn't be able to stand being alone with her, and 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 you know the potential of what could happen. So that's always kind of that, that's kind of an interesting thing to have laid out, and that I guess that would play into his guilt too. So I always I always thought that was that was a, a very interesting uh, little addition there. The script also has a, a, some stuff that I think um, balances things in the sense that it uh, its portrayal of um, uh, uh, of the United States, the cavalry and all that. Um, one of the things that people complain about partly for good reason is the treatment of the character of look, cause it's kind of played for comedy, but it's, uh, but it's so cruel, you know, especially, uh, Martin Pauly, you know, kicking her down the hill, that old flashback thing, her, the, him getting accidentally married is in the book, but it's not told in like this flashback through this letter that was a invention by Nugent, and she never gets kicked. She just there's like a Comanche that's actually her lover, and she runs off with him. And years later, they find her dead. But um, but uh, people always say she's just treated so poorly, and it's played for laughs, and it's just one of the one of the black eyes of the movie, and especially in its treatment of you know in the indigenous people. And I agree with that to a certain extent, but I also wonder if John Ford did that on purpose to get people to laugh at this, you know, just somewhat cruel piece of physical comedy. And it is played with the comedy music and all that to then kind of gut you or, or pull the rug out from under you when you, when they go and find her dead, you know what I mean? So like, you almost would feel guilty at yourself for laughing at her. I mean, people now are horrified, but I'm sure in the fifties, they probably thought that was just funny. You know what I mean? So then to, to, to play her as this character of like get kicked around and mistreated 
for laughs and then to have her get killed and by the U.S. Cavalry, I, I think that I'm wondering if that was an intentional gut punch by John Ford um, where, you know, he's actually he's using the audience feel some shame. Yeah. Um, and then that whole thing, too, about like the cavalry and, and how they killed all the women and so but it is touched upon in the movie. But in the screenplay, it, it is even it is even more explicit. The the um, uh, the the uh, a general um, is it's specified in the script that he is he is a it says he is loosely modeled upon a certain other well-known glory hunter of the Indian Wars. So he's basically saying Custer. And that massacre is sort of based on a, a Custer massacre. And, and, and he's talking to these two newspapermen from the East. And he doesn't even know the Indian tribe that he slaughtered. He thought they were Cheyenne. And, um, and uh, Ethan Edwards is, and Martin are just, uh, you know, absolutely disgusted by him and stuff. And that would have, I think, maybe gone a little bit further in balancing out people's perception of how the Indians are treated as opposed to, you know, the, you know, the Americans in the film. So I think that's something that, uh, that, uh, they kind of improved. There's that ending scene with, um, with, uh, where, where Ethan goes and, and, uh, and grabs, uh, Debbie and you don't know what he's going to do. And, um, and, uh, that, I think that was a reshoot that was shot in Bronson Canyon as opposed to Monument Valley. Yeah. It was shot like basically like near like Griffith park, I think, or like in LA, in LA. Yeah, exactly. And so, and so in the script, it's, it's more laid out where he says, where, where is that? Basically it's like, you know, Ethan Edwards says to her, where do I have it? He, he's basically like, you know, close your eyes, Debbie. Like he's going to. He's going to he's going to shoot her as you think it's going to happen. He pauses and he, you know, says to her, you know, um, you sure do favor your mother or something like that. And, and, and you know, and picks her up and takes her home. And um, and that I think Ford wisely cut cut that because you don't really need that. Um, that's something that. I guess when you're writing a script, that feels like something you need. But I think when he actually went and filmed it, um, it was just better to do it that way. And I also wonder if that's why in that shot, when he grabs her and he pulls her up, you kind of see like a there's like an awkward jump cut almost. You know what I mean? Like there seems like there's frames missing. Gotcha. Uh, I've never noticed. But I'll, I'll look closely the next time around. Yeah. So I wonder if there was dialogue that he just trimmed, you know, uh, in, in the editing room. So I thought, I thought that was interesting. And the other thing is, um, the ending where, you know, he's taking her home or whatever, the way the script ends is, you know, the people are at the house seeing them come up and Lori runs out to Martin and Ethan is holding, um, is holding Debbie and riding towards the house. Moses got his rocking chair. Yeah. And Moses there. And then it just ends. So the whole thing, I think that was imp improvised. Um, of them going in the house and then John Wayne doing his Harry Carey uh, senior arm thing and then walking off and the door closing through the doorway. That was something that um, Ford had come up with. And, you know, it's just, you know, one of the most chilling, great pieces of 
film ever. And I love throughout the movie, we've got those doorway shots over and over again. Martha at the beginning or the shot from within the cave when John Wayne's been hit by an arrow or uh, there's mm-hmm. another shot. When he's, I think when he's going to Martha's body and he's a silhouette. Exactly. Yeah, it's yeah like four, then, four shots framed that way from the darkness within looking at the doorway and it's just like that's forward as it's most poetic oh yeah and and then also just because yeah then he has to go out in the in, you know in this you know in this windy kind of dust and everything and it's and it's just sort of this very poetic ironic ending for him because he ends up suffering the fate of the Indian whose eyes he shot out. He has to now wander between the winds. You know what I mean? He doesn't have any place to go now. He's, you know, he, you know, he can't be part of this. Um, so I think that's great. The way that they kind of give you Ethan's backstory, he's got this Mexican medal and it's specified in the script. He, he, he worked for general Maximilian in, in Mexico and stuff. And he seems like he's wanted for a crime and the war ended three years ago, but he hasn't come back. And so I love all that kind of, uh, all, all the backstory that they give you, but they don't. I mean, um, it's just, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it, it's, it's Well, they perfect. give you There's... all you need to, to be fascinated by the character, but they also leave just enough empty where you can imagine all these narratives. Like you, you imagine the love affair with Martha or the requited love, unrequited love affair. You imagine him not surrendering at the end of the Civil War and keeping his saber. You imagine his adventures down in Mexico. So it allows the character to take on bigger dimensions where your imagination's filling in the gaps. And yeah, it's, I think it's the best written character in any film that John Ford ever, ever shot. Oh, definitely, definitely. Um, um, I guess another, another complaint that I would have is um, I don't think that Natalie Wood is great in the movie. Nope. I also just don't think that her character is written that well. Uh, there's no, especially when she's you, cute as can be, but she's much better in other movies. And she's obviously inexperienced. I think she's like 17. Although she had done like Miracle on 34th Street and stuff like that. But her better work comes later with like Splendor in the Grass and stuff like that. Yeah. I mean, I don't think it's, I don't think it's totally her fault. But I mean, in, like, so in the book, she speaks Comanche. They speak Comanche to her. And I'm sure they didn't want to have them speaking Comanche for the rest of the movie. You know, especially when you know the, about the real Cynthia Ann Parker. She is, you know, uh, you know, she did. She she couldn't speak English anymore. They, they She lost that ability. So to have her just like speak it clearly, she got her little pink lipstick. It just it, it looks a little it looks a little silly and. That's the era. It happens yeah, in all. It looks a little these... bit like a high school girl dressed up as an Indian for Halloween. Yeah, but I guess maybe she could have had an accent or I or something. But even in the script, you, she doesn't. She she does not make the decision to go with Martin in the script. She does not say, "Okay, I'll go with you." You're never given a reason why. You know what I mean? In in the movie, she just decides that she's going to do that. And if you know anything about the actual history, that's, that's wrong. Yeah. So she would have, um, she would have fought him tooth and nail. And yeah, it is a weird, it's like an unearned dramatic beat because earlier she's saying like telling Martin to go. And that's when Ethan's like, stand aside and it's about to shoot her. And he's like, no, Ethan, no, you don't. But they have their little confrontation and then Wayne gets shot by an arrow. And so that the situation is never resolved. We don't see what is the catalyst for her suddenly acquiescing and wanting to go with Martin at the end. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so I guess, I guess to just even maybe, maybe get into a little bit, uh, I don't want to get this to go too long, but I guess I do want to, I think we probably should touch upon certain 
the, the, these elements now that we've established who the Comanches were and all these other things is that is that the portrayal of the Comanches as brutal, um, as rapists, you know, as murderers and all that um, is not wrong. It's not incorrect. It's not inaccurate. Um, so that is not that is that is not an issue. I don't think. Um, I don't think it's. I, I I think they get their culture wrong and they're a little flippant with how they do that. But that wasn't that wasn't the era. They weren't they weren't trying to do that anyway. So whatever. But I do think that um, you know when compared with actual history, the idea that Debbie just decides after all that time to to just want to go back um, is just uh, I don't know it 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 basically tips the scales of to an extent saying you know why this you know, this white american culture is the you know superior one it, it, to to an extent i still love the ending of the movie and everything so i can't you know and and of course she didn't live with the comanche as long as the real cynthia parker but yeah you're 5 but, years versus uh, 24 yeah but so i think i i think that is uh, i think that that's one one element of it that um you know is uh as there's 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 maybe some some issues. I just wish they'd found some way though for Scar to talk that wasn't that kind of generic monosyllabic like oh someone teach I you just wish, I hate I, that way like you watch something like Last of the Mohicans where you got you know West Studi playing Mogwai and you're like all right this is fucking awesome like this is so fucking cool yeah, the way they portray the I'm character I'm sure I'm sure studio or whatever probably maybe would have never agreed to uh, casting a Native American in that big of a role, but yeah, the guy he just he just stands out. Or get a Mexican, just, or get somebody, but just like to have that way of speaking, it's like he comes just shy of saying like "how" or something stupid like that. It's just I can't stand the way he the character expresses himself, and also he's the big heavy, obviously really the big heavy of the movie is Ethan Edwards. He's the scariest person in the movie by far. And I love how when he comes to that little outpost with the cavalry to meet the girls who've been reclaimed after long periods of captivity, they scream in horror when they see Ethan Edwards. Oh yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he, he does become, he does become the big villain for, for, uh, for Martin, you know? So yeah, that is, yeah, he is the scary one. You don't, I don't ever watch, watch it and ever at any point think that, scars feels like a threat and that that's unfortunate because yeah, I they're think only that's scary when they're not really shown like the beginning when you when they're chasing them but they can't see them or when the family's about to when the family's bracing themselves for the attack then they have like, like this mythic quality that's so awe-inspiring and so cool and i just feel like perhaps uh ford should have maybe if he could have found a way to show them less and just let your imagination fill in the gaps because like what happens to martha and what happens to lucy because we don't see it that makes the, the the atrocities far more terrifying. Oh yeah, and 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 to the movie's uh, uh, credit is they do give Scar um, a certain amount of. Um, I mean, they do they do give him motivation, motivation that they did not have to give him, and that's part of probably probably part of the reason they move the timeline up to the uh, 1860s as opposed to the 1830s yeah, when his the sons Cinti have been Park killed. And so his, his wives are in mourning and things like that. Yeah. Because, yeah, because at that point, you know, um, there wasn't full scale attacks by, um, Americans really to where his sons would have been able to be killed. But the thing is 
he could have been doing all that without his sons killed and it still would have just been how Comanches acted. So they were giving him a certain amount of uh, motivation and, and, uh, and sympathy that wasn't necessarily even necessary. And, and then, and, and like, you know, people say they're, they're, they're portrayed one-sided and a, and a force of nature. And I agree that as a representation of a culture that could be problematic, but that's not necessarily the best form of storytelling. You know what I mean? It's not an equal time thing. The movie would not be improved if we had an in-depth look at the Comanche culture. You know what I mean? It's not, you know, that's not the, that's not the, it, it, that's not the streamlined mythic storytelling. Oh, this is know? awesome when people confuse propaganda and storytelling. Like if your goal is to explore Comanche culture, then making a Hollywood movie is probably not the best way to go about it. Make a great documentary or write a great book or whatever the case might be. But people, they get so wrapped up in this idea that a movie somehow needs to accomplish all things at once. And storytellers might have specific goals in mind. And yeah, I think the deep dive into Comanche culture was not... Not the goal, but luckily, at least there are some materials out there. But sadly, once again, as I mentioned before, the Comanches, they didn't write books. They didn't write, they didn't commit anything to, to, to paper. They had the, the oral tradition, yeah. but we just don't know a hell of a lot from their point of view, except for the fact that Quana managed to live for a few decades past uh, living in the reservation. So he was able to share a lot of his experiences. Exactly, exactly. And then, and then, uh, yeah, and then. Having Quana Parker in two road together played by the same guy. Oh boy. <laughs> what an insult. What a fascinating character uh, to have be played by that guy in two road together. One of the one of the worst uh, John Ford westerns. Ugh. It's got one scene that I like where Jimmy Stewart and uh, Richard Widmark are sitting there by the river, kind of like shooting the shit. But two road together is not at the top of my list of John Ford films. That's that's kind of the one where he's trying to almost do a Cynthia Parker story where they're trying to explore more what happens once the cap captive girl comes back. But um, no, he doesn't do that one very well. So yeah, Man Child yeah, Liberty Valance so. is comes the year after and it's a much stronger movie. I've I've never seen Cheyenne Autumn, and I know that was part Horrible. of John Ford's attempt to capture Native American culture. But what what are your thoughts on that? It's got some nice. Monument Valley, uh, you know, uh, locations, but, uh, maybe, maybe in 10 years I'll, I'll watch it again, but I, I just found it so dull and yeah, Sal Minio as an Indian and just, it's just, yeah. And then once again, they're, they're, they're played by, you know, it's, once again, it's like Navajo, it's, it's, it's the Navajo culture. It's a, it's just a dull preachy movie. It is, it is not. It is not a good one. So that that is uh, that is un that's un, an unfortunate one that that was his last western. But um, but uh, yeah. So anyway, the the searchers. Psh, I could talk about it forever. So many different wild things that happened. Uh, I didn't even get into the story about the stuntman who snuck booze on the set because it was banned, and then John Ford found out. And so he went to the guy's like bunk and peed on it. And he said, he, <laughs> he can drink it. He can sleep in it. And just all the other fucked up things that he did. So, well, I know like uh, the stuntmen, but, like that's where like the Navajos and the crew had some of their best interactions because like 
whether you're, you're dancing or falling off horses, they had a, they just had to to work together quite a bit. But he had one stuntman who'd broken his back and spent like seven months on a body cast, but it still did three horse falls on, on this movie. That, but, that that was well, it might have not been that one, but this particular stuntman had come on set after just um, after just healing from like cracked vertebrae. So so yeah, uh, you know. But uh, yeah, he was not he was not sympathetic. But um, but and then there's a story of the producer, the, the the Vanderbilt guy and his wife coming to set and John Ford didn't want the producer there, the guy financing it. So he had the stuntmen stage a fistfight during the dinner to kind of scare them off <laughs> to leave the set. Um, so there's 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 some pretty interesting stories we didn't get into. Max Steiner's score. Sometimes overbearing, but I still think it's great. Yeah, the score is good, but it's the Sons of the Pioneers music at the beginning and the end that really sells me on, on, oh, on the movies. Yeah. So quick question. Though. Have you ever read Joseph McBride's book on John Ford? I'm sure that obviously probably devotes like 100 pages to the making of, but I've had that book sitting on my shelf for 20 years at this point, but it's such a doorstopper and so giant. I keep kind of, I've read fragments of it, pits of it here and there, but I keep postponing when I have to read Joseph McBride's book. I have not actually um, I love all those books on Orson Welles, and I don't know why. But I, 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 anything he writes about Welles, I read. But anything he's written about Ford, I don't. I don't. I, I don't know why I have that hiccup. To be honest, um, until I mean, I've always, I've always known just kind of the generals, general uh, stories about Ford and 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 all that. I've always kind of known his work, how he worked, how he shot things. No storyboards, few takes. He wanted spontaneity and. And, uh, you know, all, all that, the way he worked, how much of a dick he was and all that. But that, you know, my, my knowledge was, uh, for a while, um, you know, just, um, uh, about as deep as a Wikipedia article in terms of John Ford and his career and, you know, his personal life and all that. Um, so doing research for this, I, I delved a lot more into it. So no, I haven't read that one. No. Yeah, it's just it's it's so fucking big. I was like, you know what? I'll just watch directed by John Ford for the fifth time, and I love that documentary. <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. For oh, and then that score because Max Steiner did like Gone with the Wind, King Kong, and just a ton of yeah. Uh, He's, he was one of the go-to composers of the '40s and '50s. If you watch any movie by Warner Brothers in the '40s, there's a very good chance that Max Steiner did the score. And yeah, he was just yeah, everywhere. I think by the time of the Searchers, his career like those kind of huge lush scores were kind of going out of style and uh cooper gave him the job just as kind of a favor for a friend and uh i think that him and ford were not happy with he wasn't happy with how ford used it and ford didn't like like i think he told peter bogdanovich he's like there's a guy in the desert with the with the you know the uh philharmonic uh you know playing in the background uh but uh but i like the score outside of just sometimes when it underlines some of the comedy or the terror too much but um and i think the way it weaves in the uh the civil war songs at the beginning and and the um stan jones music but but uh yeah so overall i it's 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 one of my very favorite westerns um and it's probably um yeah I, I, it's my favorite john ford western it's my favorite john wayne western but uh, i also think it's very flawed but those flaws i guess are are always interesting and, yeah, like uh, I've got my fair share of complaints as well that have not subsided with the age, but I don't and I don't even make myself overlook them. I just kind of 
roll just roll the punches and just wait until the movie gets good again but it's because you don't have to wait long because there's just so much in here that works so well and yeah of the 50s westerns this is definitely top of the heap i mean i love anthony mann's westerns from this period i love bud bedeker's westerns from this period but you can't really fuck with the searchers and then obviously by the time you get to late 60s the genre is ready to make one of their big you know giant leaps but yeah i think i think that the searchers might have the highest points in the western genre of moments of of scenes of acting um of of cinematography of locations all that i think that when it is really on point it is it is better than almost anything else but it just does has those sort of flaws that um you know make it some somewhat of a tonal roller coaster but uh yeah it's a, it's still one of the best. Beautiful. Well, I completely, totally agree. But where can people find you online if people want to talk about Westerns more with you? Because as you and I both have said, this is an inexhaustible topic and we never grow tired of it. But as, uh, if somebody else wants to get in on the fun, where can they reach you? Uh, you can reach me on Twitter, uh, Facebook, and Instagram at David Lambert Art. So you can see all my artwork. Um, Twitter, I post a ton of stuff. Um, I saw a long feed that you created about guns earlier. So I'll I'll pick my way through it and see which one needs to be retweeted. I was like, holy shit, there's a lot of stuff in here about guns. (laughs) Yeah, I I do a lot of stuff about weird, weird aspects of of Western history. um, And also, um, you know, stuff about Western movies and maybe how it might tie into history. So the most recent thing is I did a I did a very long thread about um, guns. movie guns when they would have to they would alter one type of gun to make it look like an older gun because the that gun wasn't available so it's a very weird thing uh minutia that maybe most people won't care about but uh but uh it's uh for people that are really into that kind of thing hopefully they awesome. find that as we mentioned at the beginning of the episode like the, the evolution of technology is what changed the fate of the Comanches in Texas. So is, is all that stuff super important. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, like in this one, it's just like, you know, uh, the Western, the, the cult single action army is a single action gun. And so a lot of times in movies, if they need a guy to fire a gun real fast, they'll have a modern, um, a modern revolver from the 20th century. And they'll add little things to it to try to make it look like an old gun. So in like Shane, when he's supposed to be firing fast, he suddenly has a modern pistol, um, just for a couple shots. So I kind of go into all that kind of stuff, how they, how they trick you to, in, into thinking you're seeing old guns when they're actually mocked up, uh, um, ones and just the history of the guns and all that. So beautiful. Well, we hope you all have enjoyed this episode. If you've not watched the searchers in a while, revisit it, it'll blow you away all over again. If you've never seen it, I mean, at this point, you've listened to us talk about the searchers for about four hours you know, all you need to know. So go off and enjoy the movie. We hope you've enjoyed this show. Please remember to leave a rating and review, subscribe to the podcast, all that good stuff. And for the time being, I'm in Twitter jail for a tweet about Live and Let Die uh, because uh, Universal Music Group did not like that. So you got to find me at at wrong real, not my usual at Colbrex. But as the old expression goes, onwards and upwards. It ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and... Blow.